I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode eight of the Starting Line podcast with me, Rich Lee. Keep your eye out for some incredible guests coming up in, not just in series one, but hopefully series two. We helped to put an event together on Thursday for Conor McGregor and his new Irish stout forged. So we've been working with them for a few months. In my day job, I run a PR agency called Radioactive PR, and we do consumer PR things, and they're a client, and uh, yeah, it was a room, 250, 300 people. I think there's some fantastic people from that room that we should absolutely get on this podcast, telling us about their stories, who they are, why they are who they are. Anyway, we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about today's episode. Today, we are speaking to, as you'll have seen, Calderwood MBE. A few months ago, we travelled to Shropshire. And she welcomed us into her home. Do you know what? You're going to notice this is a long episode, but that is only because Calder's life has played out like something out of a movie. It's crazy the number of things that Calder has done. As a sporty teen, she played netball to a national level. And despite coming from a background you wouldn't normally associate with horse riding, it quickly became her passion. And she dreamt of representing Great Britain at the Olympics. Everything changed for Calder in an instant, though. In 2002, when she was crushed by a bale of hay weighing more than a ton. It didn't stop her from being the first adaptive climber to climb Kilimanjaro to being the first adaptive rower to row the Atlantic in 2019. Calder's challenged herself time and time again, as you're going to find out, helping to raise enormous amounts of money in the process to help others. And she did go on to represent Great Britain in para-canoeing, and she competed in the World Championships. Calder founded Climbing Out, in 2010. That's a charity to help rebuild confidence and self-esteem in people facing life-changing injury, illness, and trauma. And in 2021, she was honoured for her charity work. However, in another weird 
twist of the tale. On the same day that Calder found out about her MBE for her charity work, just one hour later, she was sat in a hospital being told that she had breast cancer. Calder dedicated the MBE to her dad, who died 11 weeks before she found out about the honour. It's a hell of a story. I feel like I say that each episode, but we've been very, very lucky with the guests that we've had. And again, if you listen into this and you think, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear the story of that person. I want to know more about that person. What was their starting line? Where did they come from? Why are they who they are? Get in touch. Hello at startinglinepod.com. Follow us on all the social media things. That's at Starting Line Show on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and the Starting Line Podcast on Facebook. Tell us who you think we should be speaking to. We got a big long list, and don't worry, we're working through it. But you know, and these things do take time. I, th- I think I said to somebody the other day. I reckon from first speaking to somebody, even if it's somebody I already knew, to then getting them on the podcast, is we're talking twenty, thirty different conversations and you know these things I wish it was as easy as pick up the phone hey do you want to do a podcast yeah sure you know it's, it's not always easy to coordinate diaries which is why after 12 episodes of this we might well have a little break just while we then work to put hopefully series two together anyway you can go and follow Calder as well on Instagram that's Calder underscore wood you can follow climbing out a charity at climbing out charity and I guess to find out more, to find out about the podcast, to find out more about me, you can go to startandlinepod.com as well. You might recall during the James Cracknell episode, if you listen to that one, that I mentioned Calder. That's talking to an MBE that's rode the Atlantic about another MBE that's rode the Atlantic. Crazy, crazy people. I'd sooner talk to them and tell you about it. <laughs> Here we go. So, without further ado, I bring to you my conversation Calder Wood, MBE. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home, Calder. It's a pleasure. It is beautiful. We are sat here with who? who? Uh, so Spriggy, who's fast asleep on the sofa, and Kipper, the old man, and Hardy. I know they all look up as you say their names and then put their heads back down again. Um, they're like, okay, I'm not wanted. Yep. Yeah. So again, thank you for inviting us in. As we were just saying, people do crazy things all of the time. You know, you open the paper, you look on social media, somebody's doing something crazy, but your why is slightly different. So what I'd like to do is go all the way back to you. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I was born in Kent and I was down there until I was 10. Um, my dad was from Kent, but my mum was from Northumberland. So when I was 10, we moved back up to Northumberland for, for work with dad and mum got another job. And What so did they we- both do? Uh, so mum was a school teacher and dad was a rent officer. Very normal family. And it's something that I always say that, you know, I kind of came from a very normal background. Would you, um, would you say working class? Um, my mum would probably kill me if I said it, it, yes. But but fundamentally, we had to work for everything. Mm. You, you know, I can remember when we first moved up north, mum budgeting £2 a meal to feed everybody for an evening meal. You who know? was everybody? What's your family? Uh, like so there's point? mom and dad and me and my sister. Mm-hmm. So so there was four of us. So um yeah, money was tight. And you know, if we wanted to do something, we had to save up and do it. Holidays were going camping in a tent in this country. I don't think we ever went abroad as a family on Where holiday. Where did you go camping? Where did you love? So we used to go, when when we lived in Kent, we used to go back up to Northumberland so right. mum could see her family. Once we moved to Northumberland, we then would go up to kind of Scotland or down oh, to Wales. And, um, you know, we were dragged around the hills as kids, which I think is where a large part of my passion for the outdoors 
kind of came from. Were your family the same? Is your sister the same? Your parents? No. Really? Massively <laughs> not. Um, I mean, mum and dad were big into the walking, but no, they they were very musical, very... Inspire guitar in the corner. Uh, yes, is yes. That, is that rubbed off on you? Well, I mean, I... I was kind of forced to play the piano and play the guitar and the recorder and the clarinet and, you know, but my passion was sport and horses. Well, and, and animals. I mean, all all animals, but particularly horses. Mum and dad kind of weren't. But yeah. So I was really the real black sheep of the family. It caused quite a lot of friction as a child. How how young are we talking? Like how um, how early on did you kind of find that? Oh, that I mean, I wanted to ride when I was three years old, really? and like no no riding school would take me till I was five. You know, yeah. so I started riding when I was five. All we could afford was. I'd say that's not cheap. No, so it was a thirty-minute riding lesson once a week until I was kind of fourteen, fifteen. I think it might be a bit younger than that. Mum and Dad kind of still trying to turn me into a normal child. Um, <laughs> What's a normal child look like? Uh, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think they wanted me to do well at school. They sent me to girl guides. You know, Were you any good at piano. school? Uh, no, because uh -huh. <laughs> all I wanted to do was go and ride horses and play sport. Because you moved at 10, so you presumably one more year were in primary school and then straight into secondary. Yes, yes. So easy it. enough transition? Um, I found it very hard when I initially moved up north. Um, Just found it hard to settle, really. But then when I went into the comprehensive, I think that was when things started to get a bit easier. I... Played a lot of netball. I played netball at a national level. Um, England. We went for England trials. They said I was too small, which was How a tall large. are you, Kelda? I'm 5'4", so five it was kind of true, you know, <laughs> for a netball player. That wasn't very big. Um, but I was playing um, all over the country and playing for lots of different teams. See, so I've heard you talk a tiny bit about netball, and it was a sentence. I played at a national level, and with what we're doing here, it's all about, as I say, getting to know who you are and why yeah. you are the way you are. You don't accidentally play for England under 18s, especially at five foot four. So talk to me about sport at school. Talk to me about your kind of passion for it. Yes, I, I think from a really young age, what gave me confidence and what made me feel like the person I wanted to be was always to work harder than anybody else, train harder than anybody else and do more than anyone else why it made me feel good i don't know maybe it was about control that you know there's a lot of, i wasn't naturally good at things so unless i worked really hard i didn't succeed so did were you a natural when it came to netball or did you have to work hard oh no i definitely wasn't natural <laughs> what position were you uh goal attack so so a goal attack at five foot four presumably yeah. shorter then but here's the thing i learned so you know you get your huge goal defenses and i learned that actually my trick was i could step underneath them so if you have three <laughs> seconds before you you know you have to let release the ball so i'd wait until kind of two and a half and i would just sidestep underneath them and take the shot work to treat so um, your accuracy was really good though uh well th so this is where i guess i I really sort of became the person that I still am. You know, when I was 13, 14 years old, I would go into school at 6.30 every morning and I would just go in with a ball and I'd make myself get 100 shots in a row. You know, I'd get to 99, I'd miss one, I'd go back to to one and start again and you're starting school at what half eight to presume that's two hours of shooting yeah depending morning. on how many i miss yeah. <laughs> so, um, um did you ever go all the way through zero to 100 oh i got i got there 
towards the end, you know, yes, I did get that I was really accurate, but it took an awful lot of time and an awful lot of hard work. What do you remember about playing kind of the trials? I just loved it. Loved it. And and people often ask me, what's your favourite sport? And they think it would be a lot of the stuff I've done since. I would actually always say netball because that team sport, you know, when you're playing a team sport, a ball sport, it's it's just fun, yeah, isn't it? It's great. And, you're with your and friends. You yeah. push yourself harder. I think when you're doing a lot of the other stuff that's been solitary sport, you know, when the legs are hurting or the lungs are hurting, it's an absolute mental head game um, in keeping going. With netball, you, you just play the game and you love it. And it's not until you stop mm. that you realise how tired you are. And that was exercise. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like it, does it? And it was just fun. So I trained before school. I trained at lunchtime, I trained after school, I trained in the evenings. Were your parents supportive of netball? Not particularly. Why not? Um, I really don't know. Um, it's something that I've never quite got my head around. Was there a lot of ferrying you around though? Was there? Uh, no. So I, again, I learned and, and, you know, I don't want to sound resentful because what my parents did, they taught me a huge amount about if you want something to happen do it yourself you know don't expect people to help you out don't expect people to do it for you if you want it to happen do it yourself and I learned that from a really young age yeah if I wanted to get to games I had to work out how to get to games and you know the same with with everything I was doing it was I didn't appreciate it at the time I do now yeah as a parent that makes I, I do at the drop of a hat. I'll drive my kids. They're like, Dad, drive me here. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just dad taxi but all I, the time. I think it's made me a little bit harsh, though, because I do see parents doing things for their kids. And I'm like, you're not making them tough. I think I'd be a terrible parent <laughs> if I was sure. one now. Um, but I do think, you know, people often ask me where my determination has yeah. come from. And I absolutely believe it came from that and how I had to learn were you trying so, to prove something to them? Yeah, all the time. I always say I just wanted them to say that they were proud, but I don't think that was ever going to happen unless it was a bit more linked to music or academic stuff. Right. You know, they didn't approve of horses at all. I say that they they obviously paid for me to go and, yeah. and um, ride at the riding school for half an hour a week. So, um, you know, please, please, please don't think that I'm sort of ungrateful and and... Um, I guess we were just on different pages. You, what was your you sister know, like? Totally different. So my sister wasn't into sport, wasn't into animals. We didn't get on as kids at all, to the point that she got a lock fitted on her bedroom door <laughs> so I couldn't get into it, you know. What's um, the age difference there? Uh, 18 months. Oh, so are you the oldest? I'm the younger. So you're, yeah. younger. Oh, so you're the annoying little sister. The annoying little sister. And also all my money was going into horses. So I never had any money to to buy the things that once you get into your teenage years, you know, whether it be a hairdryer or makeup or clothes, you know. And I did have fun. I did do quite a lot of yeah. socialising as well. But I never had anything to wear or makeup to put on. So I'd always go and nick hers, you know. And she got really, really annoyed Hence by that. Hence the lock. Hence the lock. <laughs> um, I'd say I didn't have a particularly close relationship with with kind of my family, either mm. my, my sister or my parents. I just felt like I was on a very different path to them. Already at a young age, as I say, a successful one, given 
England trials? Were there competitions around the world? Did you travel with it? Or was uh, it all... Just in this country. So, so yeah, I ended up yeah just playing with the regional team oh. that went around. So, so I had the England trials. Right. Got onto the regional team. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, there was no international. Would that be northeast? Stuff. Uh, yes. And and so we we did go all around the country. It was a lot of weekends away at tournaments. Um, and that and that kind of thing. But they were very very happy times it what does sport teach you i think more than anything just to work hard you know and if you work hard it pays off not always but you've got to give yourself the best chance of success and you know some people are naturally good and and naturally gifted and and maybe genetically gifted yes (laughs) and, and can just come out and do it that that wasn't me um but you know i mean sports taught me a lot more further down the line but but as a kid, it gave me that absolute foundation. I, I fundamentally believe every child should should experience the joy that sport can bring you. Yeah. And, you know, as I've, I've done these interviews and spoken to other people and, you know, I guess spoken to people around sport as well. Rugby was my my sport. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you look at people from, I guess, less privileged backgrounds and sport is a way up and out. You see, it's it's the first thing that you might think, oh, I'm I'm okay at this, and it you know it doesn't matter, like you know, class, race, gender, those things don't matter all of a sudden because it's your ability on the pitch or on the field or on the court. I think it's a leveler. And and I tell you, you can have someone who is talented but hasn't got the attitude. You know, attitude you need to be counts for so much. Everything. And I think that's what can give people confidence because you're in control of your attitude you know and there's so much stuff especially if you're not from a privileged background where you're you're not in control and you don't get to have the say that you maybe want but no one else has any control over your attitude so if you're prepared to go onto the pitch or the court or and work hard hopefully that will if the stars align if the stars align exactly yeah yeah. but um so how old were you when you started riding i was sent to girl guides mm-hmm. hated it but <laughs> unfortunately for my parents the guide leader was a policewoman on horseback mm-hmm. um and she owned a horse and at the stables where she had this horse there was a big fat old horse that the owners kind of wanted someone to help with you remember so, the name of the horse tanya yeah she was big and she was fat um <laughs> And they wanted someone to help. And so Christine was the guide leader. And and so she asked them if if I could go and help. They said yes. And so I started. Was this going close up. to home? So this was about, it was about half an hour's walk away. But I started doing some little competitions with her. When I say competitions, it was the real sort of cheesy local. On Tanya. Gym. On Tanya. Yes. The only thing we could generally do any good at was fancy dress because she was too fat to be any good at anything <laughs> else. Um, but I was living the dream because I was, you know, out competing and, you, you, and on, I had a horse, you know. And then as Tanya got older... Well, she was pretty old when I started, but there was another horse on the yard called Stroller. They kind of said, oh, do you want to ride Stroller a bit? And so I started riding him. They then would take me to competitions. So I'd still have to sort of ride to any competitions, but they would come along and support, which was wonderful. <laughs> All I wanted to do events. So my dream was to represent my country, ride at the Olympics in three day eventing, which what is, is event? dressage, cross country and show jumping. So you have your one day events where you do those three disciplines in one day. And then as you get up to the bigger competitions, it's over three days, dressage first, say cross country, second day, 
show jumping third day. That was my absolute dream. Now, the problem with Stroller was that he didn't like to leave the ground. Right. I mean, that's for a horse, not useful. Yeah, definitely if you want to event. So I put myself in hospital an awful lot of times because all I wanted to do was go and jump jumps. And all Stroller wanted to do was keep all four feet firmly on the ground. So it ended up in quite a lot of (laughs) head injuries, which probably explains a lot. (laughs) And then my parents thought I was going to flunk all my GCSEs because I was spending too much time at the stables. So they tried to bribe me by saying if I got nine A's, um, they would get me my first horse. They also said that for each A I didn't get, I could put £50 towards the horse. So I was then washing up in a local pub on a Sunday trying to save some money to put towards the horse. And I saved up £750, not an awful lot to buy a horse that it's going to take you to the Olympics, you know. And in the end, they offered to sell me Stroller. Now, I loved Stroller dearly. So we we bought Stroller for £750. But the problem was he didn't like to leave the ground. And, and my dream was to event. In the end, I was I was at the point where I was going to university or I'd signed up to study a degree in equine studies at Morton Morrill in Warwickshire. And I got to take my horse with me. How did you find the kind of the, I guess, the, the environment around horses? Because your, your background isn't mm. necessarily as, mm. as privileged as some of yes. the other people that you know are around it. I think it's it, it gets potentially a bad name for being quite um, quite snooty. Yep. How did you find it? I always say I think there's two people around horses. There are the people that are into horses because they've got the money and they can afford to do it. And there's the people that have got absolutely no money because they have a horse. <laughs> because of horses. Uh, yes. I fell into the second category, definitely. I definitely found it's a fairly cutthroat environment. Money talks a lot. So yeah, it wasn't an easy world to be in. I would say life is a lot happier now I'm out of it. You know, I see people that that are very successful because they've ridden since they were little kids and, you know, they've been taken to competitions from being little kids and they've had good horses. And, you know, it sets you up because when you're young, that's when you get your confidence. So if you can be on a good horse, it can turn you into a confident rider. You know, I had Stroller who kept on putting me in hospital (laughs) and um, it teaches you to kind of ride defensively, you know. So it definitely wasn't the best start. But I guess I still approached it in the same way as as just working hard. We didn't say how many A's did you get? One. One A. How, how did you do? That? How did you do? I mean, all the rest B's or? Um, I think there was B's and C's and a couple of D's. But enough to get you into well. A levels, enough to get you to yes, to yeah. Uni and... So I I did A levels. And while I was sort of, oh, so I finished my A levels, I was then going to go to. So mum and dad really wanted me to go to university. I really wanted to work with horses. Isn't it funny that in this generation, we're the ones advising children, oh, do you really want to go to university? I mean, yeah. you know, a decade or two ago, it was the done thing. It was like, no, you should go you to, should I mean, go to I university. You should go to university. Yeah. Yes. And I think, um, you know, like I say, my parents were sort of quite academically mm-hmm. minded. And they're like, if you haven't got a degree, then you'll never be successful. I say now my degree is worth absolute diddly squat. Did you enjoy it? 
Uh, oh, I enjoyed being at university. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't particularly enjoy the degree, but I definitely enjoyed being at university. I learned more from, this sounds wrong, but the extracurriculum activities. But by that, I mean things like, you know, I, I edited the um, college newsletter and I was rag chairman and I was the student representative. And- or the potential for... Yeah, just, so just, you know, and I worked in lots of different places. And so I just, I just had a great four years at uni, just meeting people, having fun. And and, you said you were able to take stroller there. Well, no, so I didn't take stroller. So I realised that stroller was never going to make an event horse. So I decided to sell him, which was really difficult in itself. He was never going to do what I was I wanted to do and I had a real opportunity in going to university and taking a horse with me and I just wasn't going to be able to do that with with stroller so I ended up I did sell him and I bought another horse but again money was very limited so I think I'd got about 1500 pounds then so yeah I I ended up buying a horse that was the only kind of horse I could afford that might have the potential from up in Scotland it was unbroken, which means it's never been ridden. It was 17-2, which means it was very big. And it was a thoroughbred, which means it was pretty feisty. But it was also related to a horse that had been ridden by a Scottish rider called Ian Stark, who was a very uh, successful uh, event rider, went to a number of Olympics, won a number of medals. And this horse was related to the horse he rode. So I think it was by the same sire, so out of the same dad. The the downside was the reason why he was so cheap was because he'd had an accident in the field. He'd got a great big scar across his back leg. Knew it all. Mm. It was the... I was taking a gamble, but it was the only way I was going to afford a horse that might have the potential. So, you know, I come back with this unbroken, very large, feisty, slightly damaged horse. But we just approached it in the same way. What was the horse's name? Um, so he was called Leo. Leo. Uh, his eventing name was Arrogantel. And he was a dapple grey, which was my dream. And he was beautiful he was so handsome so charismatic and majestic that's probably the word i'd use for him so oh he was he was really really special really special yeah i broke him in myself did you get um, on like do you get on with a horse is that how you yeah, put it you know? yeah totally you, you, you can you can click with a horse and he he was he was yeah my dream my absolute dream and i started eventing him and then in my first holiday when I completed my first year instead of going home I went and worked on a yard and and took him and so it was an event yard all with the focus of of just eventing and progressing as much as we could and and getting to where I dreamt of going and then one morning I came down to his stable we were off eventing he wasn't competing but we were off eventing with some other horses and there was something drastically drastically wrong with him and we got the vet out and it turned out he'd slipped in the stable and cracked his pelvis the whole of one side of his back leg was basically sort of filled up like a tree trunk and had all these this serum coming out of it the whole way down the leg it it was absolutely horrific you know chance of putting him down but we decided to you put them on something called box rest where they just are kept in the stable so they can't move too much and he had to be um cross-tied which is where you you basically tie a horse up on both sides so that it can't move at all can't lie down because if he lay down as he got up he might shatter the pelvis stupid question forgive me for the 
idiocy. Can horses sleep standing up? Yes, they can. Yeah, okay. they can. So he would sleep, but I mean, it wasn't it wasn't easy for him, um, you know. So he was. It was about three months, I think, that he was like that. Three and, months cross, yeah, cross tied. Yeah, which is a long old time, you know. Yeah, I mean, temperament. That's not going to do a lot. For no, him, is it? but he was a he was such a gentleman. You know, he was an incredible horse, and you know, he came back from that. I started riding him again. We even did a couple of events and everything was starting to kind of move in the right direction. By this point, I was actually in my third year at university and it was a year out. So I worked on a yard, took him with me. And um, when I was on my work placement, we'd been show jumping with some other horses in the morning, came back, took him out. So he was just sort of building back up then. And um, I was riding along the road. And I always, the dog I had then, it was a dog called Romy, who was an amazing dog as well. He was, it was a husky, husky cross collie. And um, on this bit of road, it sounds stupid. I would, again, I would never do it now. On this bit of road, it was quite busy. So I used to put him on a long, the dog on a long line. So I would ride along with the dog on like a long lead just for this stretch of road. And um, Leo just wasn't really kind of listening to me that day. So I decided to tie Romy to the saddle so that I can have both my hands sort of free to to be working on on Leo. Then there was a plastic bag in the hedge and Leo shied, he spooked at the plastic bag, spooked out into the middle of the road. And I just heard this screeching of brakes and sort of the hissing of, of brakes. And we were hit by a lorry. From behind? From behind, yeah. Well, it was kind of it, the lorry was breaking as Leo was was spooking out into the road. So we actually hit, Leo's shoulder hit the cabin of the lorry. And then the front corner of the main body of the lorry went into his kind of back end. And it took me, as the lorry kept coming past, it took my left leg kind of with it, which tipped me off Leo. So I hit the ground in the road, landed in in the path of the car coming behind and Leo took off up the road. With We're the, still standing with Rummy. With Rummy attached to the saddle. So I, I then at the time, so there was more screeching of brakes as this car that was coming behind tried to stop. And I can always remember just, you know, when they say everything slows down, it really does. It was like it was in slow motion and, and just tensing my body and closing my eyes and saying to myself, you know, this isn't over yet and just waiting for the wheels to come over me. When I opened my eyes, I was looking up at the bonnet of, of the underside of the car. I mean, it literally stopped kind of. So, yeah, th- luckily there was a car in the traffic jam behind that I'd now caused that was a doctor. So he came and kind of. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> that um, is a bit of how were you? I, I, I mean, I was still awake. You know, I knew I was injured. At that point, you don't know what you've done and how bad it is. And I kind of thought that Leo must be okay because he galloped off up the road. I was more concerned about Rummy because Rummy had his own injuries. I'd run him over with a tractor when he was a puppy, which isn't great. (laughs) Just drop that one in quietly. So he'd had his own injuries to deal with. And all I could think was that he'd been dragged along by this galloping horse, you know, and, and was Rummy okay? And while we were waiting for the ambulance to come, a motorcyclist came up and he'd caught Leo and Rummy and he came back and he said they're okay you know that the dog's okay the horse has got some nasty gashes 
but he's okay. So I kind of was relieved then that that they were all right. Got taken to the hospital, got put in a cubicle and was waiting for my boss to come that I worked for then. And and I kind of got left for quite a long time. You know, there, there wasn't any hospital staff coming. My boss didn't appear for a while. So in that time, I started really imagining things in my head and, and the what ifs started taking over. And I suddenly started thinking, God, what, what if Leo isn't OK? What if Rummy isn't OK? And then when my boss arrived, she she walked in, drew back the curtain. And the first thing I said was, was how's Leo? And she just shook her head. And they'd had to shoot him. He'd, he'd, you know, had some pretty horrific injuries when they'd actually got him back to the stables and checked him out. So, yeah, they, they had to put him down. Rummy was OK, <laughs> um, but that was that was a difficult time. The, there was two things that happened. One was I totally lost my confidence. I went back to horses too soon, still couldn't walk properly. And horses are very smart creatures. You know, when they think they can get away with things, they will do. So horses used to get the better of me because I couldn't move and I was doubting myself and I was lacking confidence and they pick up on that. I'd lost it. I'd I'd lost what I had with horses because I wasn't confident anymore with them. And that knocked my confidence even more because I, I kept on not being able to do what what I used to do. And, you know, I had this point when I was just going to sell everything, get out of horses. That was it. Horses, I was done. I was done with horses. What was your, did you have an alternative? Was there? Oh, well, I kind of, I went a bit weird. <laughs> explain. I feel like that needs um, so, some explanation. Yeah, I, I, um, I started working in radio, actually, and it was like just taking a completely different path, you know, and I'm going to have a totally different career now. So I I was finishing my final year. So it was partly let's concentrate on getting my exams because I'd been having far too much fun and was probably going to fail them all at that point anyway. And so I kind of really buried my head into my studies in that final year. But I started doing hospital radio. And when I say I went a bit weird, I met a young man when I was there. And within a matter of weeks, we decided to move in together. Always a good idea. um, Not. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it totally was just a like rebelling almost from everything that I'd always done I think I knew it wasn't right I knew it wasn't what I wanted but I just wanted to have a completely different life to everything that I dreamt of you you know your family supportive of you at this obviously incredibly difficult where they were amazing was it went wrong fairly quickly not surprisingly (laughs) and I was heading into my finals at that point so my parents were good enough to say that they would lend me the money to sort of pay the full amount of rent on the house so I could stay in the house we were in so that I could concentrate on doing my finals. So in that respect, you know, I've got a lot because they could have just told me that I was an idiot, which I was, you know, yeah, these things happen, don't they? Um, so I, I, yeah, I stayed in the house. I worked hard. I concentrated on my finals. I got those done. And then I decided to get on a plane and go to Australia and just escape from it all. Again, not cheap. No, I can't even think where I, do you know what? I do know where that money came from. So I did eventually get an insurance payout from Leo. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was enough that I decided to put that money into to, to, to get over to Oz. But I can remember turning up in Oz 
nothing planned, nothing booked. I literally landed in Sydney and kind of went, where do I go now? <laughs> and I just had to find a job. And, and, but you know, I, I spent six, seven months out there, got back into horses. Did you travel around? Yeah. So I, I worked um, all over the place, but I got offered a job fairly quickly working with polo ponies. What's the difference between a polo pony? There's not a lot of difference apart from the fact that you quite often will ride, this sounds daft when I say five at a time, you'll ride one and you'll be leading sort of two on each side and exercise them all at the same time. And I um, worked for a rider who was based right in the outback and I just spent all day cantering horses around the, the wheat with nothing else to worry about other than kangaroos. You know, there was no cars, there was no lorries. And it got me back into horses. I got my confidence back, you know, riding around on those polo ponies. Was it building relationships with the horses? What, what, what do you think gave you that confidence back? The fact that there was no, no cars. And I, I still now, 30 years later or however long it is, I wouldn't ride on main roads now. So I then moved and got a job eventing out in Oz, then got the whole, I want to be an Olympic rider buzz back again. And yeah, so ended up cutting my trip in Australia short. There was a rider, an Australian rider who was coming over to the UK to base himself um, over here, who was aiming for the Atlanta Olympics. He kind of said to me, come over, ride my horses, work for me, we'll get you to the Olympics as well. What I didn't realise was that he meant grooming for him not riding myself <laughs> yeah don't worry you can come and hold the bags yes exactly it was a bit like that so um so i came back um to the uk but but i got back into my horses i got back into my eventing and moved around a little bit with jobs then but ended up working on a yard where i was kind of running it as my own yard that was great i had a couple of years doing that then i ended up coming to Shropshire um, for work and I'd been in Shropshire probably about six months and I was 26 at this point and I just decided that I wanted to do it for myself. I was working so hard for other people and I decided it was time to do it for myself. That's so, about the age where I thought exactly the same thing about my own agency. Really? Genuinely. Yeah. But it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. You can, it, around that age you think, okay, could I do this? Could I do this? And so I decided to set up my own business rented a yard and yeah that was when I would say the the kind of real journey began I was eventing then professionally you know riding horses for other people training their horses it's you know like with football or rugby you, you kind of you get to your 30s and that's almost you, you're done yeah. pretty much is there an age at which eventing becomes difficult or? not really okay. with, with eventing you know because the horse is doing <laughs> the, the hard the work thing. yeah yep. um so you you know you get some event riders that are still in their 50s 60s right. that still been very successful so yeah i still had plenty of time to kind of do that but it was then that i started to get into the racing as well because from a business perspective i needed horses in the yard so i started approaching a lot of racing trainers to see if I could break their horses in for them so basically horses that had never been ridden they would send them to me I would get them to the point that they were rideable and you know walking trotting cantering and then I'd send them back to the trainer and, and they'd go into training that side of the business really developed and as trainers got to know me and got to trust me they were leaving me with the horses for longer so I was getting the horses 
fitter before I sent them back. And then I kind of did the same thing, like, God, maybe I could do this myself. So I decided that I should have a go at point to pointing, which is amateur racing. Sprints, straight line sprints? No, jump racing. jump racing. So it's three miles um, over fences. Great fun. And I did my first season point to pointing. So I was point to pointing and eventing, but just loved the racing, loved it. And also it's a lot easier to get owners in racing because it's a social thing. You know, people will go racing to bet, to socialise, whereas eventing, it just costs an awful lot of money. And unless you've got a vested interest in the horse or the rider, there isn't a lot of thrill in it for owners so it it became much easier to to get owners so i decided to kind of move over from eventing into racing and focus solely on the racing which was very exciting <laughs> i then moved to a bigger yard so i i moved up to a yard in in cheshire I mean, this was when things really started to take off. It was, um, I ended up, it was sort of 36 boxes when I was at my fullest, which is a, a lot of horses. I had a lot of staff working for me. Yeah, it was an absolute so You took to business ownership really well. Yeah, I guess it was the same attitude of just work hard. So I'd do the work of four people. But, you know, it's what you have to do when you set up a business, it isn't is. it? You know? It really is. So, yeah. I, so I took on this big yard, massive gamble you know, huge outlay with the rent of the yard. The, the way I'd been working it beforehand was that I only paid for the boxes that I had, the stables that I had horses in. So if I didn't have a paying customer in, I didn't have to pay out. What was different with this yard was that I was paying. It's all 36 no matter what. It was all 36 no matter what. And then I'd been there a matter of weeks when I had the accident that, that then changed the rest of my life and put everything on hold for the next kind of six, nine months. So that was another really tough time. <laughs> Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So um, I was haying the horses early one morning. So I used to start before the other staff. And haying um, horses just means putting hay out for horses. Too. Yeah. So I used to... Um, I used to feed all the horses in the stables with, with their hard feed, which is like the grain feed that they have. Um, and then I would take down the hay nets, which is the sort of big nets that you, you put their hay, which is kind of like their roughage and their fibre. I'd take all the nets down and then I'd go over and fill them all um, from some big bales of haylage. So they're big square bales, weigh about a tonne. And I fill all the nets up and then go and put a net in each box um, so that, that the horses had their food. And when I went to fill the hay nets, because the, the bales of haylage are so heavy, we would always have to, when we had all the staff there, kind of push one down and make sure that there was a bale open ready for the next morning. And when I went to fill the hay nets, I, I realised that we hadn't pushed one down the night before. And in my usual impatient manner <laughs> instead of just waiting for the staff to arrive and to help me push one down they were stacked three high so I had three bales on top of each other but they're, they're quite big bales they're probably maybe a, a meter by a meter and it's wet hay so it's it's heavy and I decided it would work to just take some hay out of the bottom bale in the stack I had lots to do and I had to get on and you know there was horses to ride and things to do so I just thought it'll be fine I'll just be careful it'll be fine so I got on filling all the hay nets 
I was on my last hay net and they're in sort of wads. The bales are in wads of hay. And I, I got hold of the last wad to fill the last hay net. And that was just enough to unbalance the stack. And um, the bale on the top fell off and, yeah, landed on my head. Didn't touch my leg, but landed on the top of my head compressed everything i thought i'd broken my neck at the time because i i felt my neck go i'm surprised it didn't yeah a lot of people were surprised it didn't myself included and you know next thing i'm lying on the floor with the hay on you or was it no it had rolled off at that point i'm still thinking that i've probably broken my neck so i was completely unaware of what had happened to my leg but I was on my own on the yard. Um, in that day and age, we didn't have mobile phones like How we have long mobile were you phones. On the yard for? Well, um, luckily, one of the girls who worked for me um, lived in a flat on the yard, so I I started shouting um, in the hope that that she would hear me. And luckily, it didn't take her too long to realise that something had happened, and she came down. And I think that was when I kind of started to realise that this was quite serious because... Were you able to move your head and neck? No, no. So all you had to do was just gauge from her reaction? Yeah, Um, and they kind of covered me up with a blanket and rushed straight off to call an ambulance, went and got some help from someone else who worked on the estate where the yard was, and they were all looking pretty serious. But I was still totally oblivious to, to what I'd done. The worry was still my neck. I wasn't really thinking anything about my leg apart from I can remember saying at one point it feels like my foot's pointing up towards the ceiling and they told me afterwards that you know they'd looked at it and gone well that's because it is but they they didn't tell that to me at the and time you were led on your side I was lying on my side so your foot was pointing so yeah explain what a compound fracture is uh, yeah so basically it's where the joint comes out through the skin so my ankle dislocated. The foot was kind of on right angles to my leg, but then the joint had had come through. So I've I've got a big scar kind of right around my my it's ankle an joint. Absolutely horrific injury. Yeah, and then it got better than that because basically because the ankle the foot wasn't there anymore. The weight of the bale had then shattered the bottom of my leg, so it had shattered the talus, which is the the bone that joins your foot to your leg. So. Yeah, but it's funny. Your body is it. Well, <laughs> when I say it's funny, your 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 body copes with pain. I always we had a joke about this the other week that getting stung by a nettle can hurt as much as being shot. Because not that I've ever been shot, but um, I was going to say, it, well, is that what you're going to? I know, <laughs> but but it's kind of like when you have extreme pain, your body shuts down to allow you to cope with it. And I can remember having a laugh and a joke. Well, you know, when I was waiting for the ambulance. You know, your body deals with pain in such a, a strange way. It does. Because otherwise we'd never we'd never cope with it. You know, you, your body absolutely does shut down to enable you to cope with it. And I can remember when the ambulance men got there, you know, having a bit of a laugh and a joke as they stretched me into the ambulance because Veronica, the girl who was working for me, she was quite young, so she was going to be left on her own. And I was a bit like, I'm going to be checking up on you. Don't be getting up to anything, you know, and, and having a laugh. And then laughing with the ambulance men saying that trying to get the cannula into the, the vein was more painful than everything else, <laughs> you know, because they, they couldn't get it in. And, and it wasn't until I got to the hospital that the real pain started to to kick in and what i would say 
then is that I have never experienced pain like it. My foot had dislocated, so there was no blood supply back to the foot. So they had to pull it back into alignment um, to get the blood supply back. And But every time they moved me, it, it just was excruciating pain. And they just moved me and I was really struggling to cope with it. And they just said, I'm, I'm so sorry, but we've got to do this now. And I can just remember begging with them to just give me a moment. And they're like, no, we've got to do it now. And um, two nurses held me down on my body. And then two nurses got hold of, of my leg and they just pulled <laughs> and, and pulled it back into alignment. And I passed out at that point. Um, out of 10, what was the pain? 200 <laughs> yeah that that was that was and I, it, it does make me laugh now because when you know people say to you oh on a scale of one to ten ten being the worst pain you've ever had what's it now and I'm like well compared to that you can have broken your arm or my ten you is know, very different to yeah, your yeah. Ten. um so I always think of if that's if that was a 10 then everything else is you know pales into insignificance so yeah and what did that do to you it was Oh, I guess I still didn't know the extent that uh, the impact that that injury was going to have on oh, me. It could just be a break. It could just be a yeah. dislocation. It could just be a. Oh, I was still thinking I'll I'm be still, back I'm on the yard in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me two days, I'll be fine. Kind of thing. And then I I got rushed into surgery, and I can remember as they wheeled me through the doors, saying to the surgeon, "When am I going to ride again?" And but I'll never forget his response because he said to me, it's not when, it's if. And that, you know, as you're about to go under anaesthetic, I've, I've never forgotten those words that he, that he said, you know. And then I was in hospital for about a week. So my dad came down for a bit while I was in hospital and then they brought me home but back to the yard. And it was when I got back to the yard that it hit me because the horses are gone and you know owners they needed their horses eventing and, and i wasn't going to be able yeah was yeah enough for everybody to say there was a couple left um but the bulk of the horses there was um an amazing lady called joe hampton who um she was one of my owners but has been an absolute angel for me you know she came to the hospital every day she had her own yard as well and she just took it all under control and quite rightly, she contacted all the owners and got them to make arrangements because we didn't know, you know, quite what was going to happen. You know, I can remember getting back to the yard and just having this moment of, oh, my God, this is significant. Like, and it it questioned everything. I'd just taken out this massive yard with this huge payment. I, I wasn't earning any money then because all like the horses were my paying guests you know and they'd all gone so there was all kinds of stuff the business your riding ambitions yeah yeah everything everything so <laughs> yeah but i guess i resorted back to what i've always done and just kind of go right what can we do about it how long did it take you to get to that um not that long uh i had to just um, so I moved a bed downstairs so that I didn't have to go up and downstairs. So I put it in the front room <laughs> and um, I got a little trolley with a hook on it so that I could pull it 
attach it to my crutches and pull it into the kitchen to kind of make food and then put the food on the trolley and pull it back in to to eat I would only go and have a bath every other day just with my legs sticking out but I put I put my clean clothes into a rucksack and hop you know get myself up the stairs with my rucksack on my back with my clean clothes in and then get washed and everything put my dirty clothes into the rucksack and throw the rucksack down the stairs you know so kind of made it work it's adaptation adaptation we painted all the stables so that you know they were gonna be the best stables in the world when i got back to the point that i could ride i started mowing the lawns the yard was on an estate the estate were amazing with me so they agreed that they would let me pay half rent for kind of three months and then increase it gradually to recoup yeah which gave me a lifeline for, for keeping things going yeah we just we just did what we could, you know. After three months, I went back to the hospital and they took an x-ray and they said there's still no blood supply back to the, the bone. And if there was no blood supply back to the bone, there was a chance of either amputation or fusion. I didn't want it either because of the career I wanted. So I kind of pleaded with them not to do it and to give me another month to just shut me up. I think they said, okay but they said they'd never seen a blood supply come back after three months so I went home that day still on crutches still had my leg in plaster and decided to ride because I was like if they're going to chop my leg off I'm I'm gonna ride so I I had a couple of horses that were still in the yard then and I I went and got on and I decided I was going to ride every single day I couldn't ride with stirrups because I wasn't allowed to be weight bearing with the foot so I rode without stirrups the whole still time. Still in a cast. Still in a cast. Cast just dangling by the side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and oh, I can remember riding. So that there's like a big arena where you would school the horses. I can remember riding in there one day and just, just stopping and throwing down the reins and just kind of going, what's the point? What's the point? I won't tell you what came out of my mouth, but it wasn't very I'm sure pleasant. It's, it's, I'm sure it was, yeah. It was stronger than what's yeah. the point. And yeah, it, it was it was tough. After four months, I went back to the hospital. They took an x-ray and I'd sort of sussed out a little bit what they were looking for. And I can remember just looking at this x-ray thinking, that looks like there's some blood supply back. And um, the doctor kind of looked at me and just said, I've never seen it after four months. But yeah, blood supply come back. You and think riding helped? 100%. You know, I think riding, because you were using your legs without being weight bearing, mm. it really helped to get the blood supply going so yeah but we were still a long way from being home I was still on crutches and I can remember starting to get some horses back into the yard <laughs> and I did my first event while I was still on crutches so I had to get them to give me a lift around the cross-country course so that I could well I couldn't walk the course but so I knew kind of where to go and I would hop up to the horse on on my crutches and then get someone to leg me up yeah, I was gonna say and... famously not the easiest things to get on no no was that sensible absolutely not but it was kind of what I had to do to just feel like I was getting back 
But I always remember Jo, who who I talked about before, and she had a very good horse, my best horse, really, with me, and she wouldn't let me ride it. Um, she had someone else on it, and oh, I hated her for that <laughs> at the time. And I would watch this other person riding, and she said, I will let you back on when you're ready to get back on. I don't think you're ready. And I actually, now looking back, know that she was absolutely right. It, you know, I probably shouldn't, I definitely shouldn't have ridden the others and you know when i was ready she put me back on the horse and we got going again what's what's it like today i don't want to jump ahead too much there's so much to talk about still i know now it's very different but it's been a 20-year journey to get me to the but i mean it still impacts on me remember the date of the injury no because i'm not one for i think if you make a thing of it it becomes a thing it just it's just a day you know i i can't i think it was 2002 and I know it's at the start of the season so it's kind of March time but I I think this a lot with things whether it be someone's death or prime example is the Manchester Arena bombing you know we've we've done a lot of work to support people who were survivors of the bombing and the people that make a thing of the date every year it sets them back but you only make a thing of it if you want to make a thing of it so I just choose they're just days you know was it easy to accept? No. So I went through a eight-year battle after that because I couldn't run anymore. So I've been left with a fused ankle. Um, so, so they did end up fusing? No. Oh. So it's fused with arthritis. So it's right. pinned. Fused with arthritis. So they've never surgically fused it. But there's absolutely no movement in the ankle at all and quite a lot of pain. But it's been my choice not to have it fused because... I don't want the recovery time because it's just too inconvenient. But I I spent a long time after the injury trying to be the person I used to be before the injury and failing. So that had a huge impact on my confidence and self-esteem. But also the bigger thing for me was that people, you can't see my injury, you know, to walk around, I look like there's nothing wrong. So when I wasn't running, when I wasn't, training harder working harder doing more than everyone else which had always been my identity I felt like people were being judgmental and thinking that I was being lazy I was unmotivated I was unathletic which was everything that I wasn't that's your identity to that stage yeah you are those things yes so to even worry that people are considering that you're anything but what yeah, you've always been is massive is mentally massive. it's it's massive and that's why i quite often say not now but then i said for a long time i wish they had amputated it because i felt then at least people could see why i wasn't doing things but because it was an unseen injury which is so similar to you know ptsd bullying abuse so much stuff which i think is where all this relatability comes into what i'm doing now that was the biggest battle, not the physical injury, but the but mental, the mental impact. for you. Yeah. And I got stuck. I got stuck for eight years. What did being stuck look like for you? Were you still did you still keep the stables? Did you yeah. still keep the business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I still was as driven as ever with the horses. You can ride pretty well with an ankle that doesn't move. So you maybe couldn't sit as pretty as you used to, but hey, I was never that pretty on horse anyway. So but I could still ride the same so I did a lot with my racing you know I rode under rules and under rules is professional racing so the more on proper racetracks and professional jockeys looking at the photos on your wall they are is that riding under rules uh 
some of them are some are from point to pointing um I, with the under rules so there are some you can get an amateur license under rules so there are specific races for amateur jockeys so i wasn't kind of competing against the likes of tony mccoy and the, the top riders it was just in amateur races but it, it was still you know a dream i rode at cheltenham i rode at aintree um you know amazing amazing post such a traumatic injury yeah. you're still able to yeah still able to do it so um you know that was great and life kind of got on i think when i say i'm stuck and i look back and i know what i mean by that now and it was that i didn't i wasn't at peace with who i was was it anger frustration more than anger i got very frustrated at what i couldn't do i got very frustrated at how my leg limited me um and i fought constantly to to try and just be who i used to be so i was i was constantly fighting and i mean we'll talk as we go on a bit but you know i i found peace with my injury in 2017 it was a very specific oh, that is moment. a date that you remember yes 19th of january 2017 I do remember that one because it was my birthday which helped so oh, you know <laughs> That um, will help. Yeah. But let's um, let's get to you know how you how you found that piece. But there's a yes. there's a lot in between. I know. There's 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 a lot that you 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 got through between um you know then. So um so you you've got the business, you've got the stables, yeah. You're still you're you're riding under rules, you're yeah. you know, doing all these things. What what next? Um so I ended up moving yards again. It was a bit of a I, I, someone, I was offered a partnership with someone, went into partnership with them. That didn't work out. A, another tough time. Um, from a business sense. It, from a business sense, yeah. Um, but ended up sort of moving to a yard where I just downsized. So mm. I think I had 15 boxes, did it all myself, decided not to have any staff and, and just do it myself. Bit of help. Obviously, I needed some help with racing and with the horses that needed breaking in. Did you ever find it difficult that doing the... The, the hay after uh, like was was there ever a ever a kind of psychological issue with i didn't stack them three high high again, again. <laughs> no <laughs> every bale would be on the ground <laughs> so yes but yeah and and i i moved to this new yard and i had the season of my life um you know the horses just kept winning it was it was amazing you, you know yeah things things were going great I was, yeah, racing all over the place, winning. Life life was brilliant. And then I was uh, w with someone at the time and uh, and he dumped me. <laughs> Very inconsiderate. And, um, and I really, for some strange reason, I really struggled with it. Um, you sometimes, you look for stuff, don't you? And, and again, looking back, I don't know why I struggled with it as much as I did, but I really struggled with that breakup. You've already had a lot of change, I guess, in your yeah. life. Yeah, and I think you just want a bit of security, don't you? So, you know, that that breakup was tough. But, you know, I'm a massive believer when people say everything happens for a reason and it sounds so cliche and cheesy, but I totally, totally, totally believe it does. And I'm so glad he dumped me now because because of that, I signed up to climb Kilimanjaro and I just wanted something to focus on, something to 
distract why myself. Why Kilimanjaro? Why why climbing mountain challenge? You could have done any number of things. Yeah, I think I'd always loved going back to my childhood. The hills. Parents, yeah, I'd always loved my hills, loved my mountains. I'd done a challenge before my accident when I'd climbed in the Himalayas, but um, it was doing the Annapurna circuit. And that had given me an absolute passion for, for mountains. So I kind of was looking for something that was A, affordable, B, not too much time, and C, was tough, but not too tough. Can you speak to A and B? How long does it take? How much does it cost? Uh, so Killy, I think, was about a 10-day expedition. And it was one of the charity ones where you had to raise a minimum. It was a minimum of £3,000 for Help for Heroes. And I'd done this before. So when when I did the Annapurna circuit, you had to raise a minimum of, I can't remember now, it was probably a couple of thousand pounds, mm-hmm. but that was for the Teenage Cancer Trust. Right. I'd organised a ball to raise that money. So I was like, I know how to do this. You know, I'll organise a ball, raise the money, go and do Killy. But obviously the leg was an issue because yeah. yeah i didn't have that when i you don't have a flexible you don't have a working ankle no so i didn't tell them <laughs> um <laughs> and um yes i just thought i'll just keep quiet about that and see what is it happens. a group of you that goes up presumably like a large group yeah or? so i did it through a, a company so i didn't know anyone else doing it but you all meet at the airport and, and go and killy was oh, it, it wasn't my favorite mountain in the world and my leg wasn't brilliant but there were some amazing people as as part of the group. The guy leading the trip was a guy called Dominic Rudd. And when I did it, I was like, oh, my God, I just I'd love to work in this industry. I'd love to do what you do. And I'm, but I'm using my ankle as an excuse. I'm like, but, but, but. And he just went, why don't you just do it, Calder? Why don't you just do it? And I, I can have had this moment where I was like, why don't I just do it? And then I kind of still felt like my ankle was a reason not to and then on the last night we had this we we summited and we had this party and so many of the group came up to me and said how much it had inspired them to keep going that if i could do because they sussed out i had a gummy leg by this point i think after 10 minutes they probably went hang on hang on there's (laughs) there's something not quite right here you know so they all knew about it i love Um, you call it gummy leg as well yes (laughs) my gummy leg and um so yeah they they'd come up and said how much it inspired them to keep going are you registered disabled no right i probably could be yeah I choose not to be. The that reason, labels thing. I'm not. I I think God, oh, we, we're all who we are. Mm-hmm. But for me, um, a lot of the time, you register as disabled so that you can claim a benefit, so that you can get your disability parking badge because you need it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I don't need it. You know, I call myself adaptive rather than disabled and that's that's nothing to do with not wanting to be disabled at all it's just i find that i have to adapt things there's not much that i can't do i just have to adapt the way i do it so i I don't need to have a parking space i don't need to take up a parking space as someone who probably does need it you know because i can walk from the other side of the car park so i've i've never registered for, for that reason i guess when they told me how much it inspired them I had this moment when I realised that I've been getting it all wrong for the last eight years. And instead of getting so bitter and so frustrated about what I couldn't do or what I struggled with, I needed to start focusing on what I could do. 
So I spoke to Dominic and I came back and I retrained, began retraining as an outdoor instructor. And that was when life started to change. Were you doing that alongside running the stables? Yes. So How long did you continue? Quite a long time. So I'd say probably at least a couple of years. I still needed to earn a living. So I there is, there is one another guardian angel I've got to tell you about who's a guy called Mark Wood. So I met Mark when I did the Annupurna circuit in the Himalayas. He lost his leg to cancer at 17, but was out there doing the Annupurnas. He'd gone on to be a Paralympic swimmer, won, he went to five Paralympics, won 12 medals. And he is the most incredible person, never gives you sympathy. And he knows this, though he won't, but, you know, will never kind of give you the, the molly coddling. He just gives me a right good kick up the backside as and when I need it. And he's the kind of person you need around, it, you know. And so I came back and I spoke to Mark and said what I wanted to do. And he linked me up with a, a guy called Dave Bunting um, from an organisation called Carnegie Great Outdoors. And I started doing some shadowing work with Carnegie Great Outdoors. So I was doing that hand in hand with the stables. So I would every so often, I'd get up at kind of three o'clock in the morning, get all the horses done before I went, drive up to the Lake District, do a day's work in the Lake District, drive back, do the horses when I got back. Was you in Cheshire? Uh, I was back in Shropshire by this point. Shropshire to the Lakes is a a distance. Yes, but it's back to, if you want it, work hard and make it happen, you, you know. And then... I was driving home from the Lake District one day and Mark Woods rang me up and said, Kelda, there's someone who's had a similar leg injury to you, hasn't been able to accept it to the point that he's tried to take his own life. Will you talk to him? I pulled over and, you know, after the telephone conversation, I was then driving the rest of the way back to Shropshire. And I just I just knew I had to do something with it. I was like, God, how many other people are there out there that are feeling stuck? Like I've been feeling stuck for the last eight years. By the time I got back to Shropshire on that drive, I'd come up with the idea of climbing out, what we were going to do, how it was going to work. So the whole idea was a charity that would run outdoor activity programs who'd had traumatic injuries to try and help people find their mojo. That was the idea. I then started looking into it and the idea promptly got stomped down in no uncertain terms by people saying that taking people into the outdoors with traumatic injuries would never happen. But I had said to Dave Bunting, I went, oh, Dave, there's there's something I want to talk to you about. So I told him the whole idea. And he went, we could do that. Said, if you source the funding, you find the people, we can deliver it. So I went, let's do it. And that was where Climbing Out kind of was born from. Yeah, that was that was again another sort of change of direction and another. What year was it? See, that was two thousand and ten. So that was eight years so after was Kilimanjaro was two thousand ten as well, right? Yes. yes so but... it was just after Killy. It, it, so Killy was at the start of the year, and this was kind of we set up as a non profit making organisation in October two thousand and ten. To become a registered charity, we had to have a minimum of five thousand in the bank, and we had to be operational. So I organised another ball, as you do. <laughs> um, and at the ball, we raised £6,000. So that was enough to um, tick the minimum 5000 It also, in those days, was enough money to run a programme. So it meant we could go ahead and, and get our first programme scheduled in. 
Then use Mark again. So he was a patron for the Teenage Cancer Trust. So the first programme, we took 10 young people who'd all, all been through cancer. And at that point, it was just about using the outdoors. It was a huge success. But God, it's a long old, long old, you know, first year we only ran one programme. The second year we ran two programmes. And then things were very slow. It was working, but it was slow. I was still doing horses at this point, um, just doing climbing out voluntary um, around the, the horses. And then Dave asked me if I would start working at, at Battleback. Um, and Battleback is, it, it's with the military. So for guys who are on the wounded, injured and sick list and it's a five-day activity program but they incorporate mental resilience coaching um in with the activities and it was a world-class team I couldn't believe I was being asked to join this team because I sat in a room full of the most incredible people you could hope to meet and you know all I'd done was ride horses all my life and I'm sat in this room kind of part of the team so I felt very out of place I guess what I learned, the important thing was my story. That was why Dave had got me there, because it was relatable. But I also then decided I would go and get myself qualified as a personal development coach because I wanted to feel like I could do a good job. That's changed the whole way we do climbing out. But in the meantime, I also then, I guess, got more and more involved in the adaptive world and realised that maybe I could do sport again. So it just wouldn't die, would it? No. That, that something in the back of your head. Totally. And I, for a long time, I thought climbing out and battle back and justified why my accident had happened. But like, I still wanted, I wanted to do sport. I wanted to be an athlete. I, I wasn't, but I was sort of starting to learn that there was ways to still be an athlete, even with an injury. So I started playing wheelchair basketball and, you know, do, it, oh, Very amazing, <laughs> so much fun, so much fun. And that's a way to bring it back to netball in a small yes, way. Yes, yeah. and it was the same sort of feel. Brilliant, you know, loved it. And so suddenly started to become aware of parasport. Mm. And then I saw an ad on Facebook for a talent ID day, actually with British athletics. And, and I applied to go. I hated athletics, but I was kind of like, but I want to do sport. They accepted me, but I, I literally had no enthusiasm to do it at all, you know, and I do believe you've got to be motivated to, to compete at any sort of level. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yes. So um, I then was asked to go on a 
a wheelchair basketball course on the same day. So I was like, brilliant, an excuse not to go. But then a couple of weeks later, I was contacted by Paracanoe, so GB Paracanoe, saying that they were having a talent ID day. They'd seen I'd registered with with Para Athletics. Would I be interested in going along? Kayaking was much my more my cup of tea. So I was like, yeah, I will be there. Went along sprint kayaking. So it's 200 metres in a straight line as fast as you can go. Long, slit, skinny, slim boats. Really unstable. How many per boat? One. One per boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would definitely say I wasn't a natural. Right. But also when I turned up there and, you know, everyone's walking around in GB strip and, you know, the photos are on the wall and it's it's the GB sort of training base. And I was just like, what kind of dream is this? It, you know, I dreamt of that Olympic journey for, you know, so many years as a kid. And here I was, you know. In a, the most roundabout way. Yes. But you're in that environment. Yes. But I was totally useless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Which, no, no, I really was. I was totally useless. You know, couldn't believe in a million years they would ask me to get involved. Um, I think they must have been desperate. And, um, but yeah, they, they, they did. They asked me to to go and start training on a weekend. So I started going over to, to Nottingham, the water sports centre in Nottingham, a couple of times a week. And quite again, the start of a whole new journey happened then. I was just doing it as and when I could for, for a while. Still useless. We used to judge the success of a session as to how long it would be until I fell in because I just couldn't stay upright in the boat. But I guess I've just resorted back to what I'd always known and just work hard, train hard, keep going. But that was me. So I was getting me back, which was the most important thing. And then I got selected as part of the Podium Potential Squad. So 2014, I think that was. So aiming for the Paralympics in 2016. That's Rio. Rio, Mm -hmm. yes. And it meant I was then a funded athlete. So I was still doing bits with climbing out. But at that point, I decided to fold the yard. So that was a momentous huge decision. decision. Huge. You know, horses were, were everything I'd done and all I'd done for, for 20 years, you know. And that was, I can remember sitting exactly where I'm sat now with just this house was freezing and, you know, just boxes all around and just sitting on this sofa. going, What have I done? what have I done? And not knowing how I was going to earn an income, how I was going to make things work, you know. But, you know, sometimes we have to close one door to allow another one to open, don't we? And And you said earlier on, big believer in things happening for a reason. Totally, totally. And do you know what? It was was hard, but it was the best decision I've ever made. Um, I'm happier now than I've ever been. And so, yes, I, I then was able to concentrate on aiming for 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 Rio you, you know and that was the the complete target was that training all week what was what did that look like as a funded athlete yeah so i wasn't i wasn't fully funded so i still had to earn other money in order to to kind of pay my way but i was travelling to and from nottingham so i would I was staying in a tent because I have my dogs. So I, I couldn't find anywhere that I could afford that would accept dogs down in Nottingham. So I stayed in a tent and I stayed down there on a Monday and Tuesday and then came home, no, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, came home on a Thursday, went back on a Friday and then came came home for the weekend. So a lot of to and froing, living out of a tent with with three dogs. Um, You know, it was kind of fun. Um, Not. But um, it was 
I wouldn't say it was going okay. It was going okay. Anne Dickens was my main sort of rival for the spot in, in Rio, but she was world champion. So, you know, I mean, that's not that's not an insignificant hurdle, is it? No, she was going to take a bit of beating, yeah. but it did mean that if I did beat her, there was a good chance. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, good chance of a, a medal in, in Rio. I then got injured, so I got a stress fracture in my rib, which kind of put a complete spanner in the work. And because I'd come to it quite late, you know, I was I was playing catch up the whole time. So that was another time when it got really tough again where you I was off the water for kind of four months and and couldn't train missed out on going to the world championships in 2015 which meant that I had to go in 2016 in order to to qualify so then I went to there was a training camp out in Brazil in in Rio in the January still had on to beat but fully 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 believed that it was my destiny to to be selected, go to Rio, win a gold medal. So the final selection regatta was another date, I remember, 6th of June. Yeah, I had to beat Anne. I had to beat Anne in two races um, in order to get the slot for, for Rio. At the World Championships in 2016, she'd won gold. I'd finished 10th and that was a month previous to the final. So it was going to be a big ask. You know, I knew it was going to be a massive, massive miracle for, for me to do it. But all you can do is sit on the start line and give it your best, you know. And she beat me by 1.5 seconds. So, um, I mean, 1.5 seconds is quite a lot. It's a lot in athletics and and in sport in general. But, you know, to, uh, I mean, that was 1.5 seconds. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I know. Um, But it was was the right decision and did go and win gold. Hold on to her. Yeah. Rarely do I find, I say it's about successful people and sports people in general. Rarely do you find other sports people that want to tear other people down or other yeah. successful people you know if, if somebody's tearing somebody down there's an insecurity there there's a you know yes. there's bitterness it, you just rarely see it yes and and i think she was the faster paddler and that's what sport is all about that's the truth of sport the, the fastest person's got to go so you know she was the right person and she's to representing go. the country at the same yeah. time so we want the best yeah totally so but i i guess at that point things just stood still because suddenly you know that whole dream was over Again, I didn't quite know where I was going or what I was doing. Can I just say at this point, so you've been a netball player, you've been um, an eventing horse rider, you've been a point-to-point and under rules, is that terminology? Yeah, yeah. And a a para-canoeer. Yes. Canoeer? Canoeer, yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Yeah, jack of all trades, master of none, I think. But uh, it speaks to your ability to keep going. And, And the the importance of attitude you, you know i think it, you know we, i've not been a natural at any of them but i've worked hard at all of them so i then thought Anne came up to me as we crossed the finish line and she she paddled up beside me and she put her arm, arm around me and she said you better start learning japanese because you'll be going to tokyo i always love her for saying that you know and at the time i was like right right four years Tokyo and then they came back from Rio and I got kicked off the squad because I was too old and not fast enough and that was tough again (laughs) but another big moment in your life another big moment in my life but it's also back to everything happens for a reason and it does because as a result of being kicked off the squad I was then introduced to a guy called Martin Hewitt 
from the Adaptive Grand Slam. And the Adaptive Grand Slam were looking to take a disabled team and be the first disabled team to do the mountaineering Grand Slam, which is the seven highest peaks in the seven uh, continents, plus the North Pole and South Pole. And they were looking for a team to attempt Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South America, 7,000 metres. So I, I I was told about him by my performance lifestyle coach. So you, you have kind of a, a lifestyle coach that works with you. And she saw me and she knew I was struggling. And she said, look, Kelda, you know, I've had this conversation. Would you be interested? And I mean, I literally picked her up and sort of threw her around the corridor, shot home, rang Martin up straight away. And Martin said to me, you know, I know you'll be fit because of what you've been doing and I know you'll have the right attitude because of what you've been doing can you be out in the Alps in 10 days time and I just went yeah and I mean I can remember sitting at my desk just going oh yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> just you know just say yes yes that, just say yes mm-hmm. just say yes and that was that. I, I kind of flights were booked and I got it all sorted. Martin is ex-military. He was shot in Afghanistan, paralyzed down his his um, left arm from from the bullet wound. And he was taking a group of military guys, all with various injuries. And it's pretty inspiring when you're surrounded by people like that. So I was like, I am not going to be needy. I am not going to be weak. I'm just going to turn up. So I can remember turning up at Manchester, not really having a clue what we were doing or what was happening. And I didn't want to ring up and go, where are we meeting and how are we doing it? So I just, I got there early. I sorted out my own kind of boarding passes and everything. And Martin rang me up and he said, oh, we're we're out in outside, I think. And I was like, oh, I've already checked in. And I can just remember Martin going, oh, okay. And I was like, yes. Yes, I'm going to prove that I'm an independent, like strong minded female. Yes. Yeah. And um, so went out to the Alps. We did uh, about a, a week out there, I think it was. And we we did two mountains. So we did Grand Tete, which is the highest mountain in the French Alps and Grand Paradiso, the highest mountain in the Italian Alps. Loved it. Loved the mountains, loved the guys, loved their approach. Were you the only woman then? Yes. And the team, how, how big was the... Uh, we had we probably had about 12 out in the Alps. Yeah, I, and I was the, the only sort of non-military person out there as well. But what that did for me was it just made me all the more determined to not be the, the weak link. The trouble was my leg was not very good at all. I ended up in a huge amount of pain, non-weight bearing. So I didn't have my crutches out there, which caused a bit of a problem. But because you're you're kind of roped up because of the crevasses and obviously, you know, the guys are walking a bit quicker, but I have to be so careful of my foot placement. And so I was getting pulled and, you know, and the snow gives way because the ankle doesn't move. Well, it isn't very pleasant at all. And a lot of the guys were kind of saying she's never going to do it. She she won't make Aconcagua. Um, and Aconcagua, just to say, is is taller than um, Kilimanjaro, right? Yes. Yeah. So Achilles, sort of five eight, five, five eight, nine, think, yeah. five eight. And I think and, for context for people that are listening and maybe don't know about Aconcagua. Yes. Yeah, seven thousand meters. So you, you're talking, you know, Everest at eight thousand, and mm-hmm. so yeah, it's it's a big challenge. But Martin. I have total, total respect for Martin. And he probably 
gave me that that moment that I needed because what he said to me was, I'm going to give you a shot at Aconcagua, but you've got to work out how you're going to do it. Because as you are right now, it's not going to happen. And what I'm so grateful for with Martin for that was I developed my saying then. And my saying is, it's not about saying I can't. It's about saying, how can I? Because I really looked at Aconcagua and just went, how can I make it possible for me to climb this mountain? And there were so many things that didn't work. And I think that's really, really important to say. It wasn't easy. It wasn't the first thing that I tried worked. There were so many things that I tried that didn't work. So many things went wrong. So many frustrations. I ended up deciding that the best idea was crutches. I tried to use normal crutches and then we did a we did a Yorkshire Three Peaks, but in the winter worked great until I hit snow and ice on the top and then normal crutches slip and then you land on your leg heavily and it was a complete disaster. But I was kind of like, well, the principle of crutches works. So let's let's take what worked, ditch what didn't and adapt it. And the week before we left for, for Aconcagua, I got these crutches from a company in Germany, specially adapted to stand sub-zero temperatures, a special shape that you could use them uphill as well as downhill, ice screws, snow baskets on, all kinds of adaptions, funky orange colour, which is the most important thing. They were very funky. And I kind of turned up at the airport going, look at these, <laughs> you know, so excited that, that the crutches were going to be the answer. But I also, I think more, it takes more than just a bit of equipment. It, it comes back to that attitude again. I was with the most incredible group of guys you could hope to meet and not one of them complained. So there was a guy there who he'd been in a helicopter crash and the rotary Rotus. blades yeah, yeah. Um, had taken off one leg and gone through the other. So he had a prosthetic on one leg. I'm but trying his, to work out the physics of that. Yeah. I don't even, yeah. I know, I know. But his prosthetic was his good leg because, you know, the damage that was done to the... And, you know, there's another guy who'd uh, lost his arm and quite a few of his fingers. And I mean, and they just did it. They just, they never complained. They never whinged. They just got on and they just did it. And And I'm like, I'd used my leg as an excuse for years. I mean... Yes, I know, Carla. No, 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 I honestly had. It was, but, 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 constantly. Because right. of my leg, because I can't, because of my leg. And, you know, I looked at these guys and I was like, I really can't use that as an excuse anymore. And I had an absolute word with myself that nothing was going to stop me from getting to the summit other than things that were out of my control. So obviously altitude, weather could could play a part. But also the more important thing was that I made a deal with myself that I wasn't going to whinge because I was a bit of a whinger. I wasn't going to whinge. I wasn't going to moan. I was just going to get on and do it. I was not going to be the weak link. You know, I was I was going to show you that being female and being non-military, I could be just as strong. It, it, you know, I think in my mind, I, I often talk about this now. Up until that point, I'd seen myself as a victim. The whole time, it was why me? You know, this is so unfair. Why does this keep happening to me? You know, and I felt so sorry for myself. In choosing not to whinge and moan about it, what I did was I changed seeing myself as a victim to seeing myself as a survivor. 
And that sounds very cliche, but the difference that that choice in my attitude made was mind-blowing and life-changing. And that had been my choice to make for years and I'd never made it. it Lots of people never do. No. no. And that's Lots why I'm so passionate. never ever do. I mean, I, in different walks of life, people I know haven't yet made the choice. Yeah. Or haven't, haven't yet had that yeah. realisation that it, everything is within our own control. Yes. And it's a, it's a tough thing to watch people that you Definitely. care about and also, you know, the other people around you that haven't yet made that connection between cause and effect or you know, yeah, that, that totally. kind of that mental approach to, okay, if I choose something, you know, if I wake up, I have a choice. Yeah. And I, I and, you know, not to diminish ill mental health, not to diminish, yeah. um, you know, people generally, genuinely struggling, but, yeah, and, and it's not as easy as this. We're making it sound incredibly yeah. easy here, Calvin. It's not. We're not. It's not. Um, and 100%. I've not been through a percent yeah. of what you've been through in the, yeah, you know, yeah. in the physical way you've been through it. But there's there's something that binds the people I've spoken to so far yeah. for this. And yeah. it is, absolutely is, the successful people we've spoken to, the phenomenally kind of incredible people we've spoken to. It's, I've made a choice. I'm, I am in control of what happens next. I make every next, hopefully, right decision. And, and it's... That is 100% why I'm so passionate about what I do now is that I see so many people that aren't even aware that they have got a choice. They think they have to think and feel the way they do because this has happened to me. I thought it for years that life had to be messed up because of what had happened. And what I realised in South America was it didn't. If I chose for it to be different, I could make it happen. That's a lot you had to get to, go through, yeah, to get to the point of realization. And some people sadly don't get to that point yes. because they might make decisions, yes. that, you know, other choices that you know they never then get to make another decision in their lives. Yeah, had you summited at this point? Is that what you're saying? No. So, um, yeah, this was this was at the beginning. Mm. Really, it was a very conscious decision, and I really emphasise the conscious bit because I think a lot of the time people want it to happen subconsciously it doesn't you have to put energy into wand. it yeah Done. yeah so i had to really consciously stop myself from whinging and moaning and and really consciously focus on just being that capable strong person and i still had tough times i still had days i struggled but i'd keep them to myself and by that i just mean I'm a big believer in the more energy you give it, the more it impacts on you. So I ended up with a mantra. So if I summited, I was going to be the first adaptive female to do it. And a guide from another group who was female. So I was the only female on this expedition as well. So she came up to me one day and she spotted I was struggling. And she just said, you need a mantra. You need a mantra to stop those other thoughts coming in. So my mantra was first adaptive female. So I would just walk to Step that. first. Yeah. First adaptive female. First adaptive female. And the, the point in that was it just blocked out any of those negative thoughts that, that were there. And the most important thing. So I'd always thought that winning was everything. You had to have a gold medal around your neck to define success. And when I first started on Aconcagua, I mean, the guys were military guys, so they wanted to go everywhere like it was a chuffing competition, you know. So every little 
walk, hike, acclimatization trek we did, it had to be done like max speed. And I couldn't keep up. I just couldn't keep up. And to start with, that really frustrated me. And I had a few tears and I had a few wobbles and all the rest of it. And then there was three of the Sherpas one day said to me, we're just going to have our own little dream team and we're going to go at our own pace. And they spent the time teaching me uh, to speak some Argentinian language. And we had, we just had the best time, the best time. And I walked into base camp, I think it was, having loved it. And I looked at the guys who were bottomed, you know, because they'd been beasting themselves. And I sort of realised, right, I just want to do this. It doesn't matter if I'm first or I'm last. I just want to do it. And when we summited, um, I was the last one up there. All the guys were sat there kind of waiting for, for me to turn up. But for the first time in my life, it didn't matter because what was important was I got there. It's this huge real life metaphor. Oh, my God. So much. And, you know, I said about peace. So it was a very defined, clear moment when I stepped on the summit that I had this overwhelming feeling of being at peace with my injury and who I was. How long since you've been injured at this point? 15 years. 15 years post injury. On your birthday? On my birthday. What did that feel like? Uh, peaceful. Um, it was, it was, I still feel it now, you know, so, so six years later, I still feel it now. And this is where I say to a lot of people, you have to feel it. You can't just say it. You have to feel it. I'd said it for years. I I made all the right noises. I said all the right stuff, but I didn't feel it. As I stepped on that summit, I felt it. And and what I realised was... I just feel a bit jealous. Oh, <laughs> do you know, I, and I hate to be that person where it's like, oh, check me out. You know, I just feel very, very, very lucky to have found it because I know a lot of people don't. And that is why I then, as I was walking off the mountain, I knew I wanted to do something bigger because what I wanted to do, I'd learn that someone can't give you those answers. You know, if someone couldn't have told me how to feel it, I couldn't have read a book and felt it. I had to go on the journey. And it was at that point, I'd always felt that life had been very unfair. And at that point on the on the summit, I realised that every single twist and turn of the journey had to happen for me to get to the point to learn what I learned on that summit. And I kind of learned that there couldn't have been any shortcuts. I couldn't have missed out on any of those tough bits. Because if I had done, I wouldn't have learned what I needed to learn. And I, I see a lot of people that are still stuck in that bit where they're still wondering why it's happening. And it's impossible when you're stuck in it to understand why it's happening. But I do believe you've just got to keep moving if you get stuck, it's not going to change. But if you keep moving, you'll keep learning. You'll keep having twists and turns and ups and downs and good bits and bad bits. But as long as you're moving, you will find that answer. You will find it. And and don't look for shortcuts because you'll miss it otherwise. So, yeah. It's powerful. It's really powerful, really powerful. And as you can probably tell, I'm I'm so passionate about it because... I was not in a great place um, and I couldn't make sense of anything. What was the lowest you ever felt? Um, I, I, 
I never had like real low points. I was never depressed. I was never suicidal, anything like that. I just wasn't at peace. And the difference is how you feel once you are at peace. So when I say I was really low, I think um, I put on a good front. I was never, I, I'm a naturally happy sort of person. So I would go through day to day still laughing and joking and having fun. But oh my God, there was something missing, you know, and um, I found it on top of that mountain. But more importantly, that realisation on the top of Aconcagua was that I can't give people the answer. I can't do that for people. But what I hope I can do is inspire them to go on their journey so that they find their answers a bit quicker than I did. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that would really have a platform that I could reach a whole heap of people that were stuck. And when I came back, that platform very quickly sort of became clear that that it was going to be a solo row of the Atlantic. Why a solo row of the Atlantic? It never been done before by a para-athlete as a solo. So that first up was... Did you look for something that had never been done before? Did um, you know that? Not really, no. I'd, I'd, I'd had the Atlantic put on my radar before Aconcagua, just before I left, by a team who were doing it and they, they talked about me joining the team. I then realised their approach was very different from mine and that wasn't really going to work. And then I started, you see, I'd, I believed I couldn't do it as a solo. I had no idea. How, how the hell are you supposed to get across the Chuffin Atlantic on your own? You know, with, Three and a half thousand miles? Uh, yeah, and with no signposts and it, <laughs> no roads to follow, no map to follow and, you know. And no support team. And no support team. And um, that was when I found out it had never been done by mm, a para okay. rower. So that was kind of when, when I went, this will give us the platform to shout because it, it's not been done before. It's a world first. So therefore there is media interest. There's... Yes, yes. But also, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and that was why, because if I'd just gone and done something else that I really wanted to do, kind of where's the inspiration in that, really? So doing something that I'd never rode before, I'd done nothing on the sea, I had not a penny to my name. Explain type two fun for us. Yes. So, I well, type one fun is is while you're having fun while you're doing it. Type two fun is when you're not having fun while you're doing it. But when you finished, you look back and go, that was fun. So was the Atlantic Row type one or type two fun for you? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess now... So how long have I been back? 2000, February 2019, I finished, so four years. Now I look back and go, it was fun. It probably took me at least 18 months after finishing to start. Oh, I hated it. Even, I, even that long I hated it. I, th- I think the first words I said as I stepped on land was, I hated that, you know. And um, Atlantic campaigns who organised the race were kind of a bit like, ooh. It was a race. <laughs> well, it, it is a race, so... There's 28, there were 28 teams that the year I did it. Five of us were solos. Um, and then you have pairs, threes, fours, and fives. So there is kind of, there's somebody looking out for you. Yeah. So the, the, you have a tracker on the boat um, so they can track you. They have a um, one 
support yacht that's covering the whole fleet. But I mean, it gets, I saw after the first four hours, I never saw another boat again for the next 76 days, largely because I was so slow. Um, but yeah. 76 days. 76 days. Yes. That's how long I was out there. <laughs> Told you I was slow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it mean zero context as to what a uh, typical cross-in as a solo uh, it, so much depends on the weather. So, you know, if you get good weather and and winds pushing you in the right direction, I think the world record for a solo is 45 days. Um, however, there's two different types of boats as well. So there's some that have more wind assistance. So there's kind of like almost two different classes. I was hoping to do it in around about 60 days, but we had really slow conditions the year I did it. So it meant it was safe. There were big seas, but not crazy seas. Were there any really hairy, oh my God, this could be it moments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite a few of them. Yeah. I don't think you can row across the Atlantic and not have no. them. But a lot of the time, there was no wind at all. So it was just like flat, if like you, glass If you stop seas, rowing, you're, you, you stop. You stop, yeah. And blisteringly hot and just no help from the wind and the waves at all so but um i had to adapt you know you've got an ankle that doesn't move if you think of a rowing technique you compress and extend your ankle it's where all your drive comes from so i ended up adopted the same attitude as as Kagwa and looked at how can i make it possible tried lots of things that didn't work ended up with a pivoting foot plate so as i move forwards the the foot plate would tilt and then as i push backwards it would rotate so did somebody back. have to create that for you uh yes yeah we literally designed it and built it never been done before which which was amazing i wonder if other people have used that since well i said i really want to patent it because this means it's made it possible mm. for someone with an injury like me to row the atlantic i don't think anyone with a similar injury has tried to do an ocean row since but i i shouted about it as much as i could at the beginning so that if there was anyone i could say i know a good solution for this the problem with that was you lose a lot of power because obviously normally you're pushing off the foot plate and that gives you your power on the stroke but also most people have foot steering on their boats so that they can move the rudder you know as the wind changes but I couldn't have foot steering because of the pivoting foot plate. So to change the rudder, I had two steering lines that were attached to the rudder. So to, to change it, I had to put down my oars, sort of stow my oars, uncleat the steering lines, move the rudder, cleat the steering lines back in, pick up my oars. And the weather that we had, it was just changing so much that by the time I'd done that, it had moved again. So it just got that I I just I just kept rowing. Tell me about day one. Day one was interesting in that your main thing is to get away from land because you don't want to get caught in currents and winds and get blown back onto land and that's the end of your race before you've even started. So, you know, it's kind of the first 24, 48 hours is basically don't stop rowing just keep going great in principle but i was so violently seasick in the first 24 hours that i got to the point that i just couldn't row because i was so ill so i ended up having to put out my sea anchor which is like a big parachute that you drop into the water that because i was so paranoid about getting washed back into land is that how you sleep no when you normally when you're sleeping you just drift 
So you that not terrifying the thought of a drift taking you back. So you you're always watching your chart plotter. So if you've got any, uh, I went. We all go east to west. So the theory is, if you've got any west in your direction, whether it's northwest, southwest, you're still heading west. And um, if you're getting blown backwards, then you'll put out your sea anchor. Mm. But the trade winds that time of year, in general, are have got some westerly in them not all the time but but in general um but that first night the year before a couple of guys had been blown back onto land and that had been the end of their race so we were all really paranoid about that happening so i put out my sea anchor turns out i didn't have to anyway that the wind was blowing me away from land but i was just so paranoid that i'd done it so from word go I was out the back behind everyone else. Yeah. As you said, it's not about the medal. It's not about the finishing first. It's it's the doing of the thing. And it was hard because I was still, you know, I was still a competitor. I was doing it to raise awareness about mental and physical trauma, to inspire others. Each day I was on the ocean, I was rowing for a different person. As in Um, actually. So day one is this person, day two is this person. Yes. And each person had written their story. All through climbing out? Not all of them. Um, a lot of them were, but some people we'd we'd kind of really shouted about it through the media and and online. So we'd had some people just contact us with their stories. Everyone had been through trauma. That was the thing. Like each person I was rowing for had been through trauma, and oh, some of the stories were just you know you, you, it really put things into perspective. Just story after story after story, where oh, what they faced was way worse than what I was facing out on the ocean. And do you know what? They had no choice. They couldn't stop. They couldn't quit. They just had to keep going. And so that was kind of a real motivation for me out. And you were raising money, right? Yeah, so I was raising money for climbing out as well. To help get these same people onto... Programs and, and, you know, but more than anything, I wanted to share their stories so that their stories inspired other people. So that was all about having a platform. And without keeping going. Yeah, you can't do it, that. It, exactly. How so, were you communicating with people? Uh, so I had a sat phone on the boat. So um, yeah, I was able to, to kind of, and I got some messages from the people that I was rowing Text for. Text messages. Yeah, or, right. so it, you could get text messages on the, the sat phone. And I had one girl from Climbing Out who was sort of coordinating all the messages. So people were messaging her and then she was messaging me. Yeah, I can remember one message that came through a, a girl that I rode for. She just said, you've just inspired me to just get out there and do it. I'm just going to get out there and do it. And I've, I've never forgotten that because I kind of thought that's what it's all about, isn't it? Just get out there and do it. So it worked. It worked. And we had messages from all over the world from people that ended up just following following my journey. And that was what made me realise it wasn't about winning. I was last by a week, you know, but that was, you probably got more respect. And respect is really important to me, really important to me. And I'll never forget when we came back, they have like an award ceremony for everyone who took part. And, you know, you've got people who've broken world records, won the race, all the rest of it. And I got called up first because I was last because they started with the slowest first. And, um, and I got a standing ovation from all the other rowers. It, you know, that, that showed me that I was the slowest by a week. And yet that got the standing. Yeah. And, and it comes back to it. It's not about winning. It's not about being the fastest or the strongest. It's about being the person you want to be and staying true to your values. But it, I think that's what has 
oh, just given me so much learning because I'd always thought I had to win. In order to get respect, you know, I had to win. I had to be the best. Well, I guess one of the sporting images that, that sticks in my memory, no doubt that of others, was um, one of the brothers that helped his... Yes. Was it the, the Brownlee brothers? Yeah, yeah with the triathlon. Brownlee brothers with yeah. the triathlon, helping his brother over the, the finish yeah. line. It's not about... Does anybody remember who came first in that? It's not about that. Yeah. So it does remind me of um, Derek Redmond when he was racing the 400 and got injured, pulled up, and his dad took him over the finish line. He actually didn't finish the race, technically, but it's those things that you remember. So, as you say, you, it's not about the the winning always. It's about the, the respect that can come from being a competitor, from being in the arena, so to speak. You know, that friend of mine, um, actually the, the guy that I said that I interviewed earlier, fought in the UFC a couple of weeks ago, didn't win, relatively close decision. And, you know, you feel like, I should be able to say something here. And you're like, oh, sorry, mate. Sorry you didn't win. You know, what, what do you say? So I just sent him, have you ever read Theodore Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena? Yes, I have. And it's beautiful. It is amazing. And it amazing. talks about the dust I've on got the... it stuck on my fridge. Have you really? I have, yeah. It means something, doesn't it? It's, yeah. you know, everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Until they're that person in the arena with the yeah. dust on their face, the blood on their face, the sweat, the tears. Totally. And really the only people that matter, you know, it, and you've talked a lot about failure mm. throughout this and you've mm. talked about falling down and getting back up. And that that quote speaks to possibly a lot of people because it talks about it's okay to fail and mm. it's okay to succeed and it's okay mm. to do it. And, and you know, that's what you did there. You finished something that most people would never even dream of putting themselves through. And I very nearly didn't. You know, with five five days to go, I'd wanted to quit every single day that I was out there. I've read that you said that you want you um, you woke up once uh, and you considered trying to break a bone. Yes, that was in the first the first couple of weeks because at that point, with three thousand miles in front of me, ten to twelve weeks out at sea, I was like, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. Why would you have considered doing that? I was too proud to quit. I knew I couldn't quit. I couldn't. I couldn't go. I can't do this. But I felt like I couldn't do it. So I was like, the only way I can get out of this is if I if I break a bone, say I've injured myself. Some honour. Yes. And you'll have to come and rescue me then. But I'll save face. It, you know, um, but I wasn't brave enough to do that either. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I did I did think about it very seriously. Um, Which bone would you have broken? Um, um. So it was going to go, you have two oars that are your your spare oars yeah. that are attached to the side of the boat and i reckon if i put my arm in between the two oars and jesus God, i know <laughs> because but... you're not being through enough <laughs> yeah 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 but i didn't do it and and then your only option is to kind of keep rowing isn't it you know there's not much else you can do but five days to go i asked to quit 71 days in at about 180 miles to go and the reason why was i got caught in another weather system Everyone else had finished. So, you know, there was just mentally, I knew that everyone else was eating nice food, sleeping in a bed, having showers, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was, I just wanted to finish. I just wanted to finish. Yeah. And then I got caught in this weather system and they kept on saying to me, you know, you're going to be in on Friday. We've booked a flight home Monday. And then it was like, oh, no, no. No, you're not going to be there. You're going to be in on Tuesday. We've booked a flight home on Thursday. Oh, no, no, you're not going to be in by then. And mentally it it played with my head because I just, by that point, I just needed to know it was going to end. And it felt like it was never going to end at that point. And I can remember the conversation. 
Nikki from Atlantic Campaigns, who is an incredible lady as well, but she's sort of the organiser. Um, and she said, can you live with that decision? And I said, yes, I actually can, because I want to show people that it's okay, that sometimes you meet, you reach your limit and the right thing to do is to quit. So I was actually really comfortable with quitting. <laughs> and then, then she told me that they were going to keep it as a surprise, but that my sister was going to be in Antigua to see me in. And, you know, as we've talked about, I hadn't had the best relationship with my family and, and my sister. And it was a massive thing for my sister to be there. And one of my learnings while I was stuck out there on my own was that I played a part in having a better relationship with my family as well. It wasn't just down to them. And, you know, I lived at the opposite end of the country to them and I never went home. So actually, I needed to take a bit of responsibility and make an effort too. So one of my our absolute sort of drivers all the way across was that I wanted to go and almost make amends with my family. And um, and I was like, it's typical. I realise this when I'm stuck in the middle of a chuffing ocean and I can't do anything about it, you know. And all I wanted to do was go and give my mum and dad a hug. You know, I was terrified. My dad wasn't particularly well. Um, You know, I was terrified he wouldn't be there when I got back. I was also terrified that I wouldn't be there. You know, things go wrong on the Atlantic. And I was like, this would just be chuffing typical, wouldn't it? That just when I realised that I need to go and give him a hug and then something happens and I can't do it. So I, I, that was one of the reasons why I just wanted it to end then and there so I could go and do it. But yeah, so Nikki told me that that my sister was going to be there. And I can remember sitting on the sat phone and just sitting in tears, in silence. Anna, yeah, and just going, well, I can't quit Already now. possibly on her way to Antigua. I think she was already there by that point, yeah. So, yeah, I just knew then that I couldn't. You know, if she'd come all the way out to Antigua, I couldn't not finish the race. But, yeah, and, and so in the end, then there was a chance that she was going to have to fly home before I got in because I was taking so long because she had to get back to work. So, Deepers, what motivation, more motivation do you need to row hard than that? And all I cared about then was that I got in before she had to leave. And um, then I got caught in another weather system. 24 hours to go, and they called me up and said, you're going to miss the finish line. Um you're going to have to put your sea anchor out. And I just went, no, I'm not doing it. I am not putting my sea anchor out. I don't care if I miss the finish line. Disqualify me. I don't care. I just want to get to land. And I don't care if it's not Antigua. I just want to reach land and for this to end, you know. But what I did the last 24 hours, I never came off the oars. And I was just hauling, like have my, my rudder locked hard round, hauling to try and get the boat north. The, the wind had blown me too far south. Looked like we'd done enough um, with about four hours to go. I was pretty confident that I'd, I'd got it north enough. And then <laughs> mile and a half to go. And a, it was four o'clock in the morning, UK time, about midnight Antigua time. And uh, they send a rib out to sort of guide you in the, the last bit. And he said, uh, you're still too far south. You, you know, you're going to miss the finish line. And um, you kind of go, I've, so I, I rode in total 3,543 miles because of 
the problems with my foot steering, I did quite a bit of up and down. So did 500 extra miles just for the fun of it. <laughs> um, you know, you by that point, so I'd rode 5,541 and a half miles, you, you know, one and a half miles to go. And they tell you you're going to get disqualified because you missed the finish line. And, oh, that was, that was, oh, I, I just, I can't even describe it because I can just remember hauling on the oars i had tears streaming down my face um were you in pain presumably um i think by that point you you just sort of got past any yeah. of that really mentally like you know kind of you're, you're by yourself yeah did you was that a struggle during that time oh through the whole road that was the biggest challenge yeah and of course you just said yeah. that you're worrying about your father you're worrying about i guess it's the there, there are lots of people, possibly myself included, that don't let themselves be alone for long enough yes. to allow that kind yes. of thing to happen. So that must have been really yeah. tough. Yeah, it was. Strange place to go. You know, that was I, the strangest place you went. I mean, my behaviour out there was atrocious. <laughs> really? Like, you, What you realise is that you curb your behaviour because of other people. And yeah. when there's no one else to judge you, you just can behave as badly as you want to behave how badly can you behave by yourself oh on a... pretty badly yes <laughs> i mean at one point i was actually stood with the oar above my head ready to smash it down on the cabin of the boat just in sheer temper tantrum it, you know i was foul-mouthed i was miserable i was grumpy i was negative i chose to be negative out there because i was hating it <laughs> and and i mean i really was like i can remember seeing this amazing sunset and just looking at it and going i've seen better sunsets in shropshire it, you know but the the brilliant thing was i recognized i was choosing to be negative and sometimes it's okay do you think that that had a function for you did it get you through because it's it's more interesting possibly than blindly smiling and rowing? No. I think it made it a lot harder because I just was so grumpy all the time and all I could think about was that I wanted it to end. I did say the other day I've, I would love to do it again, not because I want to do it again, but because I didn't appreciate any of it. And I look back now and I go, it was such a magical, incredible, amazing opportunity. There's very little that I appreciated out there. Did you hit the finish line? Yes. Not what you'd expect. You know, I was just hauling and hauling and hauling. And then crossed the finish line and they let off the hooter. And and I just, I just leant over the oars and cried. It was an incredibly inward. So a lot of the time you see people finish something like this and, you know, it's all kind of the glory Jubilation moment. And, the, and... The, the flares going off and these massive celebrations. And I, I just... I just leant over the oars and cried. And it was just very quiet, very personal. I was the only one who knew the holes that I'd got into out there. And the two guys that were on the rib were sort of holding on to the boat at that point. And they were brilliant because they just sat and let me just cry and be quiet. And then they kind of said, are you going to let any flares off? I was like, no. And said, do you want us to let them off for you? I was like, yes, please. And so we just kind of then rode into the harbour and, and they let the flares off. 
and then then all the celebrations started it was it was incredible as i came into the harbor what but, time did you come in so it was just after midnight antigua time just after four in the morning was anna there yes yes and yeah i think the, the finish line's sort of just out of the harbor so that was just that gave you the time it gave me the time and the guys in the rib said you know they loved watching my face because from these tears to then as I sort of rode into the harbour, there was like this realisation. And it, it is incredible because all the um, boats and the ships in the harbour, everyone's out. They've all, they're all honking their horns. And and um, and because I was the last one, they could use up all the flares that were <laughs> left over from the race. So everyone sort of on the harbour um, side had had flares going off they were playing uh we are the champion by queen never forget it and i can just remember sort of coming in and then seeing my sister and um i i just kind of pointed at her and then you have this whole moment where they were wanting to get me to do the big like Rah! and i was just like nope nope and i just i just held the sort of gb flag and and they did the photos and then just stepped off and gave uh, we've got it on camera gave my sister the longest hug ever i mean fair to she was brave because i hadn't had a shower for 76 <laughs> days and i stank so you know <laughs> but yeah it was um it was a very special have moment. you two spoken about that moment since yeah we we've there's been a very a big difference in our relationship since antigua we have actually had a massive argument out there that the day after when I was still sort of readjusting to land life and it, oh, it proper, like it was proper, but it, it almost sort of cleared the air from the last 40 years sort of thing. And, and um, yeah, we speak more now and, and get on better than we ever have done. So, yeah. I'm really glad. And your relationship with your parents as a result, did that change? Yeah, I think I just realised family are important you know and I'd always been too busy doing stuff so I really learned the importance of making time for them they'd probably stay I still don't but then so I mean it all all gets very mishmashed mm. after that because it, you know my dad died um not too long after it, I mean when I say not too long it, it was kind of um sort of 18 months two years after after finishing but it was all mixed in. It, you know, I, I then got diagnosed with cancer um, the same day that I was found out that I'd been awarded the MBE. Um, oh, and so all your big uh, moments tend to happen. I on, know. Okay. So Dan had Parkinson's and dementia. So were you able to reconcile in that way? Um, in the it, way that felt? Yeah, I think by the time I finished, he wasn't... I mean, he, he came... So when I arrived back in newcastle and got off the train i didn't know it but everyone was waiting um on the platform in newcastle and um dad was there i, I don't think he was completely aware of what was going on but he was there you, you know but you know we pretty rapidly fell into lockdown after that so having 76 days solo on the atlantic is the best training you could possibly do for lockdown that's for sure so, you know, it was kind of tough in that you came back and then we went into lockdown and I couldn't really see them anyway. And then dad deteriorated quite a lot during lockdown. And it was probably sort of 12 months later where he missed quite a lot of the treatments he should have had. 
and he went back in for some tests and they were worried about how much he deteriorated. Um, so they admitted him and uh, he then swallowed some food down into his lungs and he got asphyxia pneumonia. And, you know, that that was um, that was tough. We had to make the decision to turn off his his hydration and nutrition and yeah, something that you wouldn't wish on anyone to do that. So yeah, he he never it was two weeks after that 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 I got diagnosed. Um how did that diagnosis come about? So I'd I'd found a lump in my breast. I thought nothing of it. Presumably not long after your dad has passed. Yeah, so it was it was a week after, a week after. that I found it. Yeah. Um so again, some sometimes you can't write it, can you? You know? Anyway, went went and you know, they kept saying, Oh, it'll be fine, it'll just be linked to your cycle and all the rest of it. But it it didn't go. So they eventually uh, referred me for a mammogram. I, I went, they then said, oh, we, we just want to take a scan of it. So straight away you start thinking, oh, this possibly isn't good. And then they said, have you ever had an injury, like a car accident or something? Um, and I was like, oh. And when I'd been eventing, I'd had a fall and a horse had stood on me. Like they wear big studs if the ground's um, muddy. They'll wear big studs when they go cross country to stop them from slipping. And I'd come off and the horse had stood on me on my chest and with these studs had basically gone straight across my my boo, broken four ribs, um, and caused quite a puncture. Uh, it, yeah, it sort of torn. Yes, and not nice. Um, as so I was like, that's what it is. So it's scar tissue, you know. So I wasn't worried. And they said, oh, we'll we'll do a biopsy just in case. So I still wasn't worried. They did a biopsy, and then um, and then I got a phone call. I think the first thing. So I'd. I'd got this letter from with the the HRH stamp on the front. Open the letter, and I was due at the hospital, kind of in an hour's time. So I kind of looked at it and went, "Huh, I think I've just been awarded an MBA, <laughs> but better go to the hospital." And so, you sort of put the put the, put put the letter the down and just went to the hospital. You, you know, you then get told you've got breast cancer. And it's a bit like, ah, ah, where does my head go now? Do I do I kind of focus on the MBE? Do I focus on the cancer? And you had no idea about the MBE? I had no idea about the MBE at all. So they did some more biopsies because they thought initially it was just going to be a lumpectomy where they just take out the lump. Did some more biopsies on the 23rd of December. So just before Christmas, which is lovely timing. Um, I got a phone call saying that all the biopsies had come back this as cancerous. This is lockdown as well. Yeah. Yeah. And told me that that it was riddled with cancer and I would need a mastectomy. So that took that took a bit, you know, so I had a few tears, but I didn't feel ill. And so I made a decision that I was going to train harder than ever because I wanted to be as fit and as strong as I could so that I could just get through this and get done and get on with life. And that was very much my attitude. So I didn't give any energy to cancer at all. I wouldn't give it any. And I had the mastectomy and I never believed I had cancer. I, I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say. I never felt like I had cancer. I wouldn't let myself believe that. It, and like, so it was more that I just had an injury that needed to be operated on. Bit of a shock when you wake up minus a boob. Um you know, you see, that that wasn't a great moment. <laughs> I think I can remember as they were putting me under anaesthetic and me just realising what they were going to do while I was under anaesthetic and it feeling 
very much out of my control. So that that did hit me quite hard. But then the really interesting thing was, so I went into surgery, I came out of surgery at seven o'clock on the Monday night. They released me at eight o'clock the next morning, which was brilliant. And they said, oh, go home. You'll probably want to spend about three weeks, you know, on the sofa watching box sets. And I just went, stuff that. You know, if I do that, that makes me ill. So I came home. We went for a Starbucks on the way home. Um, and then I came back and I took the dogs for a walk. And I set myself the goal of doing a triathlon. I As just, you do. I just decided I, that was what I needed. That was what I needed to feel in control. I needed something to focus on other than cancer. How far from the mastectomy to the triathlon was that? What was Four it? months. I guess you're fit at this point anyway. You're capable. Yeah. You're very... And and the one thing I think is really, really, really important to say at this point is I am not, I promise, making myself out to be some kind of superhuman person. A lot's happened to you. Yeah. Do you consider yourself to be a lucky person or an unlucky person or do you just not believe in that? Uh, I think it's just life. We have this, I think, a lot of the time we have this belief that life is supposed to be great and happy and if it's not we're failing i just think life's a journey and i know people say oh it's it's corny to say it's a journey it's not it's a journey it's a journey and we all have different journeys and it's it's what you make of it so it's it's just been my journey i've learned now to do something with everything that that journey chucks at you and that was what the triathlon was about so I was, guess what? I was last again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I was so slow, so slow. But it wasn't about competing and doing a triathlon. It was about having something to focus on that wasn't cancer. Running was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother, because I was going to do it in a wheelchair. And then when you've had a mastectomy, pushing a wheelchair isn't great. So then I looked at doing it like with a Zimmer frame and um, that wasn't going to work either. Ended up deciding to do it with poles. So very similar to what I'd done on Aconcagua, but it was all a bit of a last minute thing. So yeah, um, but I did it, it, you know, and that just came back down to attitude again. I just I just decided that was what I was going to do. And for me, it was all about cancer not winning. You know, it it blooming didn't. And, you know, every day I got up and instead of thinking I've had cancer, I thought, what training am I going to do today? And at the beginning, it was so small, so small. You know, it might have been 15 minutes on a fixed bike. I couldn't hold on to the bars because of of the wound and but just spinning my legs, you know, a um, couple of weeks in, I started going back to the gym, but lifting 1.5 weights, 1.5 kilograms. And I can remember saying to myself, what is the blooming point in one point? I mean, the point is that next week you'll lift 2.5 and the week after you'll lift 3.5. And in eight weeks time, you'll maybe be lifting similar to what you were. Whereas if you do nothing for eight weeks, you'll, you'll be set You'll back. atrophy both physically. Yeah mentally and, some, and and habitually as well that you know but, i think that's the the key thing is if you get up a habit if you fall out of a habit of something yes it habit massively it was about staying in the habit and staying in control so it, it's back to that choice to control and choice exactly totally. so getting up in the morning and making a choice to focus on my training it made me feel in control it made me feel like my life was defined by my actions and not by cancer and that was that was the reason why I did it. Like that was the reason why it was so good for me. Didn't matter. 
didn't matter how long it took me, how slow I was. And I'll come back to what I said about the Atlantic. I got more support from finishing last, but doing it, than I would have done if I'd won it. This is where I really want to reach people and sort of say, it's not about winning. It's not about being superhuman. It's about making the choices that are going to help you to feel better, you know, and staying in control and keeping the healthy habits. Like, that's what it's about. How many people do you think Climbing Out has helped? Um, we've had... So we've been running 13 years now. So do you know what? I've never actually stopped and totted it up, but I'd say we're probably well over a thousand people now. A thousand people through the programs. Yeah. This is people that have been through mental and physical trauma. Yeah. And it's changing lives. Do you speak to those people? Yeah. The really important thing is that we've stayed small so that everybody matters. So we can speak to people as and when they need it a lot of people stay involved with us but the really important thing is that we're not there to molly coddle we're not there to sympathize it comes back to was it mark yes the, the, the guy who said that you needed i know I, i'll t- just tell you a quick story there was a girl who emailed me a couple of weeks ago saying can i talk she'd come on a program this year and then she was gonna come through and do one of our expedition programs but didn't turn up for the training weekend and I was really cross about it and then she emailed me saying can I talk to you um you know I've had a really tough time and and I thought oh here we go she just wants someone to fix it for her and that really winds me up because we're not there to fix it for people we're there to give people the tools so they can fix themselves because that makes a long-term difference if we fix it it only works while we're there and fair play to her when I spoke to her she was like She'd been submitted onto a psychiatric ward for three weeks. And she was like, I never want to go back there again. What can I do to to make sure that never happens? So we put together Operation Kick-Ass. The whole conversation we had was around, right, what are you going to do? What are you going to do this time to make sure it doesn't happen? And so, you know, with climbing out, I pride myself on saying things that Maybe other people are scared to say, but what people need to hear in order to change things. Um, otherwise, she'll just be back in that psych- psychiatric ward and she doesn't want to be. So do you know what? We'll kick her butt. We'll kick her butt with love, but we'll kick her butt because um, that's what's going to make the difference. But you can't change things that you can't make sense of. So. Is it a case that people then apply to... So do they come to, it's climbingout.org.uk? That's it, yes. So yeah. do people hit the website and then kind of apply to be part of this? A lot of it's word of mouth. So um, what's happening an awful lot now is that we are having people um, who are coming on a programme, it's changing their lives. They're then going back into their workplace or in their family or friends um, and seeing other people that are struggling and telling them about us um, and signposting us. So that's been something that's really gained momentum since the Atlantic. We're, we're now supporting police, fire, ambulance, military, NHS, um, which is incredible. And a, a lot all of people, across the UK. All across the UK. Where do yeah. you do your programmes? Where, like... uh, so we work out a number of different venues in the Lake District, um, Peak District, North Wales, Shropshire. Um, and then we run our expedition programs in Scotland, Sweden, and the Alps, which is very exciting. That's a lot. 
That's a I life know, already. It's and too much. Gosh, that is a life already. <laughs> but saying that, that I mean, it's, it's almost a Forrest Gump of a life. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many ups and downs and twists and turns. Feels like a documentary waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be incredible. This, this would be such an incredibly visual story to tell. Has anybody been in touch? Yeah, so we are in the process oh, of, wow, okay. of putting something together. We're at the stage that we've got a rough cut okay. done. Still a way to go to, so to get a, it finished. A rough cut is a production company has put together a roughly edited version, a, a, you know, an idea as to what it would look like. Yes, and kind of the direction the story would go. So you've got a production company. Now, a lot of people possibly don't know the process, but then that production company needs to take it to a broadcaster or a streamer, like a Netflix or a... Um, a BBC, and they need to say, hey, there's sufficient interest in this to get this on air or yeah. to get this streaming. Uh, so that hasn't happened yet. No, that's that's where we're at. But that's so where you're at. We, we're kind of sitting, waiting, hoping for that moment to, to come around. You know, the reason why we've done it is to inspire others. Um, you know, it's it's not so much about telling the story, but it's about reaching someone who sat at home on their sofa watching it who thinks they can't do something and inspiring them to get out remind us of your it. your your slogan your yeah, mantra it's, it's not about saying i can't it's about saying how can i so i'm i'm really kind of passionate about trying to get this out there so that we can we can reach well, those I, people i hope and even think that somebody listening to this will be that person will be that team of people we briefly talked before we started recording about you are 15,000 words right now <laughs> into trying to make sense of this on the page. Yeah. Yeah. I told you it could be a very long novel by the end I mean, of it. But... <laughs> yeah. 80,000 words is the typical length of the book. I feel like you've got 500,000. Yes. So, it um, could well be. I'm, I'm going to have to chop it. Are you I? a natural writer? <laughs> um, I would have said no. But what I found is when I started that it just flows. Um, mm. I found I really go back to those moments and it's made me revisit things that I didn't even know were there and probably explain it a lot more visually and emotionally, I guess, than I have done in the past. I talk about the things that are uniting all of the people that I've spoken to at this point, you know, both well-known people and people, the beginnings of their successes, I guess. And key things that unite those people are, you know, they made they make a choice. They stay optimistic. They not always. You can't mm -hmm. always stay optimistic. Yep. But you've mentioned so many names during this interview. You don't. You can't do it yourself. You cannot do it yourself. Schwarzenegger talks about how he's everything but a self-made man, and the notion of the self-made man or woman speaks to us in this weird way because you think, oh, I could do what I. You know, I, I can make this. No, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Success doesn't happen in a vacuum. More than success, impact or you know, basically, yeah, the, the impact that you have on the world around you doesn't happen within a vacuum. And for you, it certainly hasn't. But you're a key part of that. And I think if you, you are you are that that uniting link between everything we've talked about today. So, I mean, I'm excited about what comes next. It feels like you've done so much already. You could put your feet up, but what 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 does we've talked about the idea of a documentary? Talked about, or mm. uh, well, not even the idea that you know the, the process of that's been happening for a few years now, yeah. right? So you know we need the right people to help move that along. You know we've we've got this. This is audio. We've got you know a documentary, a book, all these things. People learn and people take content on in different ways. But so it feels like you you, you could stop now. You've, you're an MBE. You could stop now. You've, you know, you've impacted the lives of a thousand people, but you want to amplify that to millions. What is next? 
Um, and it doesn't need to be this big, huge challenge. No, 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 it's not. I promise you. <laughs> I think that's the one thing when I say about I've I have reached a point, and I feel very lucky to have reached this point because I see I do see people that take on big challenges that they never stop. You know, as soon as they've done it's one, something it's something bigger. What's next. Yeah. Um, I'm at the point now where I want to walk my dogs. I want to grow flowers in my garden. Oh my God, that I can't even believe I just said that. Um, but I do, you know, I, I want to have, I have a partner now, which, you know, I've been single for a long time and, you know, I want to go and have some fun and have some adventures. I'm I'm going out to the Alps in a couple of weeks time to go climbing, but it's it's for a week. It's for fun. It's It's not a massive challenge. But what I do want to do, and this is really where I see the what next being, um, climbing out is is moving to a whole different level. But what we've realized is, you know, the, the core programs, the initial five day programs are a starting point. What I realized in my journey was that you need next steps. And so I've started to want to put those next steps in place for people who've come through our, our five day programs. And that's why we've started our expedition programs. So it's going to be for the first time this year that we take a group out to, to Sweden on this wilderness canoeing expedition. Then next year, we're taking a group out to the Alps. My plan is for 2026 is to hopefully do either a polar expedition or a, a Himalayan expedition with a group from climbing out. So it's absolutely now my passion and my what next is about inspiring or taking others on challenges that are their next step. You know, where I was kind of right back there, whether it had been Kilimanjaro or Aconcagua or the Paralympics, you know, giving people that next step. So I'm so excited about that because, you know, I get to do little adventures, but bring people along as part of that and hopefully give them their next step and who knows what will be then that will lead on to for them so that's that's really exciting and it, where my absolute focus is as far as the what next an absolutely incredible incredible conversation thank you so much Carla, for going through everything uh, <laughs> no thank you so much for inviting us in, into your home for having the conversation with me it's been you know just a genuine pleasure to learn more about you and um and hopefully you know, we, we can get some of these people you know, along on the journey and, you know, as part of your, part Absolutely. Of your little team. You're too right. And, and you know, that's what I hope more than anything that, you know, anyone listening to this that maybe had something that they were thinking, oh, I can't do that. Just go do it. You never know unless you try. One step at a time. Too right. There it is. I'm pretty sure somebody out there listening, you fancy writing a book, right? You fancy writing a screenplay, getting this made into a film, it's a crazy life. <laughs> well done to Kelda, though. And the work that she's doing through Climbing Out and helping people is just absolutely incredible. So I say, people whose lives have just been fundamentally entirely turned upside down by injury, illness, or trauma. And yeah, it's just amazing what she does. So well done, Kelda. I mean, she also does motivational speeches as well. And you know, it's funny, some of the guests aren't always really pluggy about things, but so I'll do it for them. If you've listened to somebody on this podcast and you think that they should come in, speak at your event, conference, business, whatever, get in touch with me. Hello at startandlumpod.com. I'll put you in touch. There's another quick thank you to Calder for joining us and being a fantastic guest. And another thank you to you, as ever, for you listening, reviewing, and 
being generally lovely. Thank you very much. Anyway, that's all from me. You don't need to hear me do any of the pluggy things, do you? I've done that throughout the rest of the episode somewhere. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Have a good one. Until next week. Goodbye.